Welcome to the Armani Talks podcast. I'm your host, Armani Talks. In this podcast, I'm helping you level up your communication skills every Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. If this is your first time on this podcast, be sure to hit that subscribe button right on below to stay updated with the latest content on how to become a much more articulate communicator. Today, we are back for Unapologetic Truths, episode 10, The Man, The Myth, The Legend, Harsh Strongman. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Arman. How are you? We have hit episode 10, finally. Yes. Anytime something's hitting that 10 increment, that's when you know it means business. Yeah, it means we're serious. This is a milestone, huh? Absolutely. We were talking about in our last episode how it's been over a year. So I've been enjoying doing these with you and having these long-form discussions on so many different topics. Likewise, it's been over a year since we started started to make these and time just flies, you know. I can't I don't even remember. I think the first episode was posted sometime in November last year. Yep. So I think the first or second week of November. So it's been almost exactly a year. And it has. It feels like one day. It feels like it was almost instant, like poof, and we lost the year. But this was a very good year. This was, for me at least, this was one of my most productive years. I know it was like a messed up year too because of the whole COVID and lockdown thing, but it was a very productive year for me. What about you? It's been a productive year. I've been growing the brand, wrote more books this year, and been collaborating behind the scenes with other creators as well. So it's been a productive year. It's one of those situations when there is crises going on around you. You could either use that as a moment to throw in the towel or find different ways to be creative, as difficult as it may seem. So I'm grateful for the past year, even though it's not been normal. I've been able to luckily adapt. And you actually have an announcement that you wanted to make, and it's a big announcement. Yes. So the fourth module of our crypto course that is on teachyourselfcrypto.com, the fourth module on decentralized finance is finally here. So if you are someone who is interested in learning more about Bitcoin, Ethereum, and DAOs and things like that, tokens, NFTs. We already had you covered in the first three modules, but if you want to now also learn about decentralized finance, we have you here as well. So the course, the, this particular module is 50 hours long. And this is very, very long because the first three modules combined were 33 hours long. And this one module is 50. But this is very comprehensive. It is everything you need to know. It teaches you from scratch. So it's not like we're expecting you to be a developer or a scientist or an autistic dude to understand decentralized finance. We will show you everything from the beginning. And this course is the best course on the internet and it's completely free. So go check it out on teachyourselfcrypto.com. The fact that you're making this free is mind-blowing to me. And guys, 
I've worked with Harsh. I've consumed his content before. And he has this art of turning complex topics into simplicity. And I do know that nowadays, more people are trying to learn about cryptocurrency, uh, but they don't know where to begin at all. So you said your course talks about the fundamentals from A to Z. Correct. So learning about crypto online has two problems. Um, not, not, I'm not talking about our course. I mean, in general, from all the resources that exist and the problem that we have solved. The first big issue is that you can't find proper resources. So if you go on YouTube and on Google and you look for resources, you will either find something that's too normy and too easy. It's very superficial and doesn't give you any of the details. and Or you will find resources which are too complex, too autistic, and you can't understand anything. They are just, they are just so filled with jargon and so complex. So what we were looking for are something in the middle. So our course will teach you everything from scratch, but it's going to teach you at a decent enough technical depth so that you understand the concept completely. So you are not left thinking that mm, I only have a superficial understanding of these things. You know everything, but you don't have to be a developer or a scientist to know these things. So everything is explained in a very simple way, but it doesn't trade off any depth. And the other problem when you're learning online is that you're just watching random videos and everything. So you're picking up bits and pieces of information everywhere, but you might miss something and you will miss something and you're not learning in a structured way. So with teachyourselfcrypto.com, you learn everything in a structured way way you you can't miss anything you go from serially from one video to the next to the next to the next and all the concepts will be covered so you aren't basically looking for random things and this is like a proper curriculum that you would go to a college for and that's one of the most important things where you're not just delivering the content but you're capable of delivering the context as well and where you were saying that some people are normally delivering it in an overly simple way or an overly complex way, one thing that I saw is that if you're not familiar with a crypto or the language in regards to it, a lot of things seem complex. And I noticed a lot of people will just give you a whole bunch of data and you, the consumer, are like, so what? So I'm sure with the way that you explain things, you place a lot of importance on the context so people understand why it's important. Absolutely. And for all of our courses and all of our modules in the course, we've always strived to give you the context of the course. So for example, when we taught Bitcoin in our first module and which is still up on Teach Yourself Crypto, we first taught you what was money, how it worked, the evolution and history of money. Because you have to know what you are replacing and what is Bitcoin. And you cannot really understand Bitcoin without understanding what money is. Because people nowadays, when they think of money, they tend to assume that this is a government function. Their assumption is that money is something that the government does, which is not really true. Governments just got into it fairly recently. Money was always something that people did. What people agreed was money was money. So if you take historically in India, cattle was considered to be money. The government wasn't making cattle. In Rome, salt was considered money. So they were mining salt from the earth, so it was very scarce. 
So salt would be money in Rome. Some places butter was money and you know we had different types of commodity money. Even metallic money was not initially a government thing. So people tend to assume that what is going on today has been going on since forever. But history is different. So we're giving you all the background, all the history of what we are replacing, how we got here. And that really helps you understand the innovations of today. That understand that makes you understand why Bitcoin is important and why it's not some bullshit thing. And if you take decentralized finance, we teach you decentralized finance first. We teach you what is a bank, why does it exist, how it works, so that you can actually understand what decentralized finance is replacing. So there was earlier traditional finance and you have to understand the problems of traditional finance to appreciate decentralized finance and what they're trying to do. Yes. And you talking about the history of a field, that turns a subject from 2D into 3D, where you're starting to get more perspective and you're thinking, oh, okay, now I see why it's so important. And I could tell Harsh that this is a topic that you're passionate about. And is there any other announcements you wanted to talk about in regards to this upcoming course? Not particularly. So this course is the fourth module is released and the fifth module, which will be on privacy coins like Monero and Zcash will be released in January. But until now, this course is total, the total, the total is about 83 hours. And this is the best course. And I think the only course of its type on the internet. So highly recommend anyone listening to go check it out you will learn something and you will be happy. And how could they access it again? You just have to go to teachyourselfcrypto.com. Awesome. And I'm going to be dropping the links in the description box. So be sure to check it out. I know what I'm doing after this podcast. So this actually ties into one of the tweets that I had pulled up for you. I have to ask someone, sorry to interrupt you. Have you yes. been learning about crypto as well, or have you just ignored it? No, I've been learning about it, Harsh. So here's my story with crypto. I was learning about it a while back when I was in undergrad, and I was just basically understanding the nitty-gritty fundamentals of it, of how the technology works, the whole process of mining, decentralization. And my professor at that time, he was pretty boldly telling us, oh, I'm just a researcher. I'm not here to teach you guys, but they're making me teach you guys. And I'm thinking, man, that's a pretty bold thing for a professor to say. But the beauty about that, Harsh, was that he didn't give us too many tests or any of that. He gave us a lot of his practical insights with crypto. And this class was, what, um, four or five years ago that I had it? So it's a it's blurry to me but i recall it enough to you know get some interest in regards to it and then my interest in crypto started to fade away up until this past year where many people have been talking about it in my friend circle so i have been staying updated with the news i won't say that i'm any sort of master in it or i know it proficiently or anything but i will say that i'm not a complete noob in it 
Does that make sense? I see. So you have a basic understanding, but not an an in-depth understanding. Yes, I, I would say that's the best way to uh, phrase me. So I wouldn't say I'm a advanced guy. I wouldn't say I'm a beginner, but I would say I know enough. But I definitely want to know more. So this class, I'm definitely checking it out. Which class did you take in college? I don't. I I did not know that they were teaching crypto in college back in 2016. So I got my master's in business analytics and information systems, and this class's name was decentralized finance slash crypto one hundred one, and it was one of the electives, so it wasn't mandatory. And the only reason I took it was because data storytelling was taken, and I thought, okay, I might as well check it out. Which and- college was this? Because this is really impressive. They had a class on decentralized finance in 2016, back when decentralized finance was barely a thing. I don't remember yeah. when Ethereum was launched. Let me check, because Ether- decentralized finance really took on after, say, Bancor, and that was not. I think it was after 2016. Let me see. So the college is University of South Florida in Tampa. Oh. That's really good. Okay, so Ethereum was launched on thirtieth July two thousand fifteen. Let me see mm-hmm. Bancor launch. So, what did you learn about decentralized finance back then? I'm very curious to hear. So, I was learning about the process of mining a coin, how the theory of decentralization works, how the different tokens are processed. The so one thing that got my curiosity that I remember learning was the process of. Data mining, and how there were different people from around the world who are getting into this. And I'm not gonna lie, Harsh. I don't remember this class in detail because I was taking these classes when I was also a full time employee. So right after a full days of work, I had to go to the lecture. So a lot of the times, I'd be dozing off. But I do recall data mining being one of the topics. That was being brought up. Hmm. What did he do, do you know at work? Uh, I do know of data mining. What did I do at work or in uh, school? At work, I want to understand what. Why would someone who is going to college also work? So that's not the norm here. Like people here don't work when they go to college. So what I was doing at that time, Harsh, was I was building applications for uh, different um, different organizations in the government. I can't go too detailed in that, <laughs> just because of clearance, <laughs> and just because of clearance. But I would handle. <laughs> um, what do you call it? But it was a lot of the um, IT part of creating applications. So the reason that I was getting my masters was because I wanted to understand more about information technology, more about business analytics, and how everything ties into that one holistic picture. Because during my time, harsh, I was an engineer, but I was also in the business side as well, and I was more so a systems engineer, who has proficiency in the technical sides as well as the business sides. And since I was working in Tampa, University of South Florida has one of the greatest programs for business analytics and information systems in the U.S. So I thought this was perfect because my company was like, "We'll give you some money." To do your masters, and you just have to pay out a little bit from your end. So I thought, okay, if you guys are going to cover my masters, 
and it relates to my field, I'll do it. And that's why I ended up being a full-time worker and a part-time master's student. I see. So is it normal for people to be working a full-time job while being in college? Because I know that college is very expensive abroad. Here in India, it's not the case. But abroad, I've heard it costs like $100,000 and absurd amounts of money to just go to college. So it's not normal if you're doing your bachelor's degree, which is undergrad. But if you're doing your master's degree, which is grad school, it's pretty much the norm. You'll see a lot of uh, career professionals who are doing their grad school as a full-time worker and a part-time student. But in my program, Harsh, there were a lot of international students who were coming from overseas strictly to come to the grad school program. And I would say 85% of my curriculum were Indians. And for them, they were full-time students. So they weren't working or anything. They were strictly focused on school. But for me, since I already began my career at the time, I was a part-time student. I see. That makes sense because here in India, we don't really go to, we don't have a job while studying and it's considered to be something that's very rare to do and people will assume it's because you have some kind of financial problems unless it's like an internship or something like that. So, so you know what's funny? Yeah, go ahead. So a lot of my classmates were Indians and I recall, Harsh, that they were smart where a lot of the stuff that we were learning, these kids that came straight from India, they knew this like the back of their palms. You know what I'm saying? And one of my friends, he's a, he was a white kid named Toby. And Toby was highly social. He wanted to network with everyone in our curriculum. Me, I just wanted to, at that point, go into the class and leave. But what I noticed, Harsh, was that a lot of the Indian students were going out of their way to bring me into their circle. While it was hilarious because Toby, the white guy, they would never invite him for the exclusive study groups, but they would go out of their way to invite me. And around that time, Harsh, uh, during grad school, I was starting to see what I call like primal tribe building, where I think the Indians saw that I was something like them. I'm Bengali, but I think they saw that I had similarities with them. So it wasn't even second guess where they were just inviting me into their circle. And I noticed that a lot of the Asian kids who didn't know each other would just team up. And people would just team up with people who look like them. Because in grad school, Harsh, yeah, in grad school, the teachers aren't that strict. They're not over here babying you or anything. You're pretty much self-monitoring yourself. So the reason I wanted to say that was because around that time, I started to understand how it's like in India because these guys are coming straight from India to the U.S. And they were very curious about how the American culture worked. I don't know if that's why they were recruiting me because they were like, oh, he's been here for some time. But it was pretty unique for me to see. Hmm. So what did you find different about the, Amer- the Indian people and compared to the average American person? So for them, man, when they heard about house parties 
their mind was blown for some reason. Where for me at that time, I used to be the vice president of my fraternity, and more specifically, I was the external vice president, basically the guy who was in charge of throwing events and making sure that our fraternity was well known in the school. So, bottom line was that I knew how to find house parties and just social events around the area. But my problem was that, you know, since I was working full time, it was difficult to constantly stay updated and know the course material. So me and my fellow Indian peers, we worked out a deal. I told them that I'd invite them out to a lot of these different parties, and they had to give me a crash course on what's important for our classes. And the deal worked out perfectly. But normally, when I take them out to the parties,、uh, it was just fun、uh, seeing them out because I think the party atmosphere in the U.S. is much different than India. But、More、they just seem to make India does not India does not have a big party culture. It's not that type of culture. Ours is more conservative and serious. Except you know, in in some bigger cities, we have like liberal clashes with rich people or upper middle class people who party a lot. But other than that, it's more of a serious thing to do. Like we we wouldn't consider like it's considered to be a vice really to party a lot. But in America, I think it's considered to be a very cool thing. Yeah, it's a cool thing, I would say, but it's more so just a part of life. Where if you're in college, you'll stumble into parties every now and then, and I guess that's why they were recruiting me into their circle because they knew that we could make some sort of exchange like that. <laughs> yeah,、so、maybe. What, what you said was pretty interesting. So you say you guys don't party too much.、Uh, what do you guys do then? Do you guys do any kind of partying or some sort of remix to that? Not particularly. I can I cannot speak for all Indians, of course, because you know India is very different across the world. Like there are different different kinds of people here. But at least for my family, I was never. Thought that partying is important, and my 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 parents always told me this is a waste of time for morons, and you should focus on more important things in life. Because any idiot can party, <laughs> like any idiot can, you know, go and dance to music. And、mm-hmm. I never went to too many parties, and whenever I have gone to parties, it's usually not that much fun for me because I don't drink, and the music is too loud, so I don't want to. <laughs> So it just isn't that much fun. Like it's not, it's not boring. It is fun, but it isn't something overwhelming or something I want to do regularly. You know, especially because it's so loud. It's it, you can't talk to anyone because of how loud it is. Plus, you are you know, as an intelligent person, that this is going to damage your hearing. <laughs> so that's not good for you. So. I I can't I personally I don't really enjoy partying and most people in India do not party. This is not something that's normal. And I do know that people do other things for fun, like you know, going out with their family. And you know, our fun is more tame. It isn't like partying.、Mm-hmm. I will say that lately this has been changing. How so? We have more Western influence, correct, because of TV and Netflix and 
people are start, starting to believe that partying is the cool thing. So you lately I've been getting more and more people who would never party ask me if I want to go to a party. So it I know the situation here is changing and we are losing our culture. But yeah, I, I don't think even today 90% of India frequently parties. Or when they say party, their version of party is very lame. It's like just food and you know normal soft drinks and like a normal atmosphere. And usually partying is something that's done for like a kid's birthday and not for like adults. Well, it's interesting you brought that up because these Indian classmates that I had, they would invite me to their study groups where there were two types of study groups, Harsh. One was in the library, which was pretty tamed. And every now and then, there was this guy named Siddharth. He would be like, hey, Arman, you want to come to the cool study group? I was like, the cool study group? I thought this is the cool study group. And he's like, no, no, no. You're in for a surprise tonight. So by the time... <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Bro, it was, it was a Friday night. And... He apparently invited me to the lit See, as uh, study Indian, group. I will say that that Indian accent just doesn't does not go with the whole vibe. Yeah. Dude, so I go to the the lit study group, and it's what you described. You know, there's a little bit of music playing. There's chips. There's salsa. There's some snacks, some food, and people are you know in a circle over here studying. I'm thinking, man, how is this the cool study group? It just seems like the same one that we had in the library, but this time it's in a house. So I think when they were initially hitting me up and they're like, hey, Armani, do you know any social events that we can go to? I think they were expecting something like that. But, you know, as the former vice president, I had different connections with you know, parties, like house parties, different club areas that people can go to. And once they went there, they were like, oh my, I, we were not expecting this at all. And they were mind blown. It's like they were seeing a new world. And I'm thinking, this is a new world? This is normal. Hmm. But yeah, to take I it a level... There's a culture shock there, but go ahead. Uh, to take it a level further, Hirsch... For me personally, the whole concept of partying, I kind of liked it in my earlier years, but later on, it was more so business for me, where I knew that if we were in a fraternity, and you know what a fraternity is, right? It's like a group you can join or something. Yeah, it's pretty much a, an organization, a brotherhood, and there's a bunch of different fraternities, and sororities are the ones with the girls. It's a sisterhood. Where if we wanted to be relevant, we couldn't just be volunteering all the time and doing these different activities, which were great for school. We had to do social events as well. So this was one of my first times seeing the business side of throwing parties where you have to organize different moving variables where you got to get a cameraman, you got to get a DJ, you got to make sure that uh, the girls show up as well. Otherwise, it's a sausage fest. And a sausage fest basically means only guys show up. So there's all these different moving variables behind the scenes. So by the time it's, I'm at the actual party, 
I'm not really enjoying it like that because I got to make sure these different moving variables are aligned. You're and I actually made a your assistant engineer. <laughs> and it's bro, it's just like a big large complex system. It's different if you're just going to the party, but behind the scenes, the person who's throwing the party, they're seeing this complex system. Hmm. This is good training for, you know, actual event businesses. What you did. Mhm. Because I can totally see how this can get complex. You have to arrange food, alcohol or a DJ and they all have to show up by the same time and partying has this network effect thing where for example if no one's going to that party then no one will go to that party and if a lot of people are going then a lot of people will go. Mhm. So arranging all of that I do see that it can get complex. Dude, you just hit the nail on the head. because there was this one event that i threw it was called asian fusion where it was a bunch of different organizations like the desi organizations asian organizations white spanish all these different people coming together and they were going to do performances they were going to do skits and all of that and afterwards we're going to have an after party so during the actual asian fusion what we were expecting was I would say 150 to 200 people were going to show up. Over 500 people show up. And dude, we ran out of utensils. So, once we ran out of utensils, we have all these different food that uh, people need to still eat. So, that's when I had to go on the mic and I'm like, "Man, oh, what am I going to do? Oh, we got to improvise." And that's when I get on the mic and I'm like, "Yo guys, you guys do know that it's Asian fusion uh, in our culture." we eat with our hands we don't need no utensils do <laughs> <laughs> and all these people are like yeah yeah we're cultural for the night and they all start eating with their hands oh man this is like being a politician <laughs> <laughs> but the bottom line is that it's complex and network effects absolutely do kick in because some parties will be dead but if you get certain key players from an organization coming they will at least bring 40 people out of the blue moon you just got to get that one black swan so do you see what i'm trying to say mm. so like the influencers in a way yeah dude because let's say you're in part of a group people could try to hit up all these other people or they could directly hit up life math money especially if it's an upcoming author cuz you have a huge reach and people like to read who follow you so it's not that different throwing the right party and starting a business hmm so let me ask you something if you had to throw a party where would you start what is the first thing you would do and how do you what is the process of throwing a great party because that's something we've never talked about before and you know our podcast usually goes into more serious topics but this is a pretty mm-hmm. fun one so tell me how does it work okay so the first thing that starts off is the idea and i'll actually walk you through a real uh, life party that i helped throw so have you ever heard of a tailgate no so a tailgate is uh, basically american football right before the actual football game 
Uh, people all get together. They do barbecue, and they play games. They drink. They do all that kind of stuff. And then once they had the pre-show fun, that's when they go to the actual game. So the tailgate is the just think of it as the pre-party to the actual football game. So one year, there was a tailgate that I was going to be hosting, and this event was going to have roughly 450 people from all around Florida. Okay, so here's the funniest thing. You asked, "What is the first thing you should know?" The first thing is the title. Let me say that again because that's important. The first thing is the title of the event. So the tailgate that we were throwing was between two rival Florida schools. It was USF and FSU. The year before, yes, uh, two universities. Okay. So I would say a year or two before, University of South Florida beat Florida State University. And this year, Florida State University was coming into Tampa for a rematch. So the title of the event was who runs Florida question mark question mark and that's when I make the event page on Facebook and simply with this sort of title multiple people are now getting curious they're like FSU runs Florida other people are like no USF runs Florida and I see all these different people hitting attend so that's another key insight rather than just going through word of mouth marketing Use information technology such as Facebook, Twitter, something, and you expand your reach. So first, create event page. Second, create um, the invites, hit it up to different people. And from there, that's where the logistics now began, the unsexy part, such as getting the right DJ, making sure the venue is clear for a certain amount of time, uh, getting the supplies, and then you have to communicate your message to different people who are helping you throw the party on what they have to do. And you don't want them to be complex. You want one person having one duty because you better believe on the actual party day, a lot of people are suddenly going to have amnesia. I'm supposed to do this? I was like, yeah, you dummy. You got to do this. So give people one task. And from there, you want to get the key players in a group, okay? A group me or something like that. And you want to be in constant communication with them. You want to assume that these people are idiots. They can't think for themselves. They need you to handhold them. Even though this sounds like a mean narrative to frame them as, you as the party uh, thrower, you're going to make a lot more smarter decisions. When you do not view people as smart, you view them as dumb and lazy. Now you're going to over-communicate more. And from there, it's just a matter of connecting the different dots. Did that make sense? Yes. And that's pretty much a lead up, man. I mean, oh, overall, that, from yeah. there... I have to ask, yeah, from, though, how does the funding come? I thought you will talk about funding the party because I assume these are college kids. So where do you pay for the DJ, the food and everything? Okay, so a lot of organizations, they have a certain fund, basically from past events that they've thrown. So they have a certain reservoir of cash reserves in their organization. 
So I'm assuming that the organization that's throwing the event has a couple of some money to play around with. Now, if you don't have money, then you're going to have to, instead of creating a Facebook page, you're going to have to create an Eventbrite page or some sort of page which takes tickets from the get-go. And this is this is a different kind of talk where if you're trying to charge tickets, you got to make sure that you, it's not that complex, actually. It's just a different sort of software, and you have to charge for tickets. In terms of the DJ, yeah, in terms of the DJ, in terms of the DJ, you just got to do some negotiating. And this is why it's important to know key players who could help you with a party where you don't necessarily uh, need to pay a DJ. Where one of my fraternity brothers was a DJ, so he's not going to charge us to throw <laughs> DJ at his own party. And a lot of them just want exposure as well. So you mm. want to get creative with that. So, Arman, do you guys have something called cover charge in the U.S. or in the parties you do? Because here in India, I've heard, like, I have never, like, paid this charge ever in my life. But I've heard that there are clubs here where if you want to go in, you have to pay them money. And especially if you're a guy. So if you're a girl, they let you in for free. Because, you know, in, as a, if you're a girl in a club, you're basically a commodity. But if you're a guy, then you're their customer and you have to pay them some money to get in the club in the first place. Mm -hmm. So in clubs, you normally have to pay a fee as a guy. And for girls, normally there's a certain period where you don't have to pay. So some clubs have uh, from 8 to, or not 8, from like 11 to 2, girls get in for free. And some clubs have ladies night out. So they're completely free in terms of entrance and uh, the drinks. And some clubs, uh, they don't charge a cover fee if they're a new club and they're trying to get more traffic. But more established clubs, Harsh, mm -hmm. you can expect them to charge a cover fee. I see. Personally, I've never been to any club that forced me to pay a cover fee. Like There have been clubs that asked and I just went to a different club. And... That's because I, I'm just not going to pay anyone for the penalty of being a guy, you know? <laughs> like, it just goes against what I believe. It's that I am not going to pay you for something I did not purchase. In the sense that, you know, if I go to a club and I buy food or whatever, then I'm going to pay them. But mm -hmm. just for entering your establishment, I have to pay you? No, you're not an arcade or something. Right. And in Miami, it's much more expensive. Where in Miami, some club entries are at least $100. And people pay up. Oh, yeah. And these clubs, a lot of celebrities go to as well. So it's seen as an experience. I see. So it's like going to a concert. Yes, that's a good analogy. So in India, do they have clubs or not really? We do have clubs and some of them are like great popular clubs here. I, I'm not very aware of this because I'm not the party guy. I party maybe once a year. And yeah, it's a, something that I'm into, but there are clubs here for sure. 
And I know about this cover charge thing because my friend was telling me and I was telling him what an idiot he is for paying it. <laughs> How much is it over there? A rough estimate? I don't really know. I think he was telling me it was like $10 or something like in Indian money. It was like 700, mm-hmm. 800 rupees. So like $10. And just for getting in, and that doesn't make any sense. Like I haven't, so it's like you go to a shop and you have to pay to get in the shop. Like, I will pay you when I buy something from the shop, but I won't pay you to get in the shop. And I could understand that rationale too, where that's why a lot of people, they don't go to clubs because they're thinking, well, I don't want to pay that much money. And you don't drink, for example, but let's say people who do drink, that's another additional cost as well. So going out a lot is is an expense that adds up over time. Hmm. I think it really depends on how you look at it as well. Because if you, I, I can totally see if someone say enjoys dancing and you know in the club for them it's like a concert. For me, it's an annoyance. Mm-hmm. So for me, you have to pay me to go to a club because I would rather do something else. <laughs> <laughs> and I can see that. I can see that because there are certain people they love going out. They'll probably go golfing or they'll do... Exactly. I like going out, but it has to be an enjoyable activity. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you normally do? Normally, if I have to go out, I would go to a restaurant. I would would go to a sports club, play some badminton or tennis, or I would go swimming. I would go to the gym, or I would go for a walk, or I would go hiking. I really like to hike. Or I would go to a beach and chill. And that's fun to me, but I'm not, I don't see the fun part of going to a place with really loud music that's literally damaging your ears. Like you you will lose hearing if you go there frequently. And Mm -hmm. that's charging you as a penalty for being a guy. Like that's not, that's disrespectful for me. (laughs) Like I might do that once just for the experience, just to understand what is going on. But I would not do this as a regular thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, people who go clubbing consistently, I don't know how they have the energy for it. And it's not just going to the club, Harsh. It's the lead up to it where there's rarely just you go to the club. There's a pregame. There's going to the club. There's walking around to other clubs near the area. And then there's an after party, etc. So it's a sequence of steps, not just one activity. There's an after party. What does that involve? Didn't you just party? <laughs> oh boy, you're new. No, I'm just joking. So an after party is, is what some activities have, where after the club event, that's when there's a smaller group of people that go to another event And this is normally a little bit more chill, depending on the atmosphere you're in. And it's more people just talking about the night and they may have a pizza or something like that. While if you go to a place like Vegas, the after party is more intense than the actual party. (laughs) (laughs) Have you heard of Las Vegas? The pizza after party sounds fun. The pizza after party is something I would enjoy, like a conversation over pizza. I have heard of Las Vegas. It's like a gambling city. Yes, that's where a lot of 
uh, people go to celebrate their bachelor parties. They go there to gamble. They go there for a night out. If you have something, a big occasion, people will say, hey, let's go to Vegas. You'll see a lot of movies based on that. Mm, I remember watching this movie a long time ago when I was in uh, high school or like junior college, as we call it here, um, called Hangover. It was a series of three movies that I watched with my friends, and I think they were based in Vegas. Yes, that was the movie that I was actually referring to. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's crazy that you watched it. It's a great movie. It? It's funny. Mm-hmm. I do and, not and, remember most of it. <laughs> yeah, and what they say is what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So these people, they party hardcore. But what's strange, Harsh, is that it's a pocket of Las Vegas where if you go outside of this pocket, it's a rather normal place where I know people that live in Las Vegas, they have their houses and they have a family and it's not what you would imagine. It's just this pocket within Vegas. There's a strip, and that's where you could go to magic shows. You could gamble. You could watch different kinds of shows, etc. So it's like Wall Street. Yes. But New York, overall, the entire place is upbeat. Where with Vegas, there's this one pocket that's upbeat, and everything surrounding that is pretty chill and low-key. It's not. It's the exact opposite of upbeat. Hmm. I've heard there's a lot of inflation going on in the U.S. currently. So can you tell me what it's looking like there now? Yeah, man. I mean, gas prices are increasing. You know, when someone says gas prices now, the only thing I can think of is Ethereum. (laughs) It doesn't even hit me that you mean petrol. Oh, wait. what, What were you thinking of Ethereum for? Because Ethereum has gas prices. To do a transaction, you have to pay gas. And I've See, been like, spending st- the entire month doing DeFi, so I was paying a lot of gas fees. So that's what I think of when someone says gas price. See, that's why I want to take your class, because I don't know much in detail regarding that. Or what you were just saying right now was a blank for me. I think you will and really I know enjoy more. the class. But tell me more about the inflation thing. I'm really curious. So I have I have a friend. Um, I have business partners in the U.S. And some of them will, will tell me that things are so expensive here that... So he sent me a picture of some kind of detergent used to, you know, clean dishes. And this detergent used to cost, I don't remember, let's say 10 bucks. And they would give you 1,065 ml. And now this detergent is like 12 bucks or just assuming like the price went up and the actual quantity went down to 945 ml. So not only is the packet shrinking, but the price is increasing, which goes to show that inflation is really, really high in the US. And the same thing is happening here as well. Oh, in India as well? Every, everywhere, all the countries in the world printed a lot of money which made the value of money decline really hard. So if you take cars, I, I know a guy who basically has um, his family, I think they have car dealerships. And he was telling me that the prices of cars have been rising 5% every month. And that's because they don't want to increase prices, but the company that makes the cars is forcing them to increase prices 
because their costs are going up. So it's becoming more and more expensive to make the car, which is why car prices are rising 5% every single month. Everything is expensive, getting expensive here from like, if you want plastic items, the price of plastic is going up. The price of steel is going up. So everything, the, the raw material is getting expensive. So everything has to get expensive. Plus fuel prices here are absurdly high lately. They've gone up like 30% or something and they're, they're still going higher. So, and that adds cost to everything because you have to transport things from you know one location to the other. So yeah, there is a lot of inflation in India, but I would love to hear about the US because that's very interesting. People in India consider US to be a great currency, but turns out it's just as shitty. Well, one of the examples in regards to inflation I can give, and it's a rather small example, but um, it's on McDonald's. Do you go, do you go to McDonald's often, as or have kid, you been I there before? To, I, I used to love McDonald's as a kid, but ever since I got into fitness and eating healthy, I go very mm-hmm. rarely. I I usually go to McDonald's right before a hike. So if I'm going hiking, I'll stop on the highway and get a bunch of McDonald's burgers for the team simply because mm-hmm. this is something you can take up with you on a hike and it doesn't get spoiled very fast so i'm similar i don't go to mcdonald's too much because i'm normally following some semblance of a diet but whenever i do go to mcdonald's i normally go with extra pocket change and in florida there's a lot of places where you need some loose change in order to use uh, what do you call it the laundry and the dryer so with extra change that I have, I'll normally go to McDonald's on, let's say, a cheat day, or let's say I'm just not feeling like cooking. So I used to recall that back in the days, with, I would say, $2.50, I could get a decent amount of food. I would say two McChickens, which will fill you up. But nowadays, when I go there, I don't think the dollar menu is really a dollar menu anymore, where it's more expensive now and it's not way more expensive Wait, or anything what do you mean a dollar menu <laughs> it's like are you telling me that um the dollar menu doesn't cost a dollar anymore well like, before things are not what they used to be a dollar menu is not two dollars <laughs> well nowadays nowadays i think they call it value menu ah so it's a little rebrand that they <laughs> subtly s- sneaked in there uh, but yeah i mean when i was a little kid harsh that's what I used to normally order from. I would get the dollar menu, and I believe they had the McDouble and the McChicken. And after the taxes, it would come out to a dollar seven. And this was plenty of years ago, but this was the cycle that they had for some time. Nowadays, I doubt a McDouble is that cheap. I'm pretty sure it's much more expensive. But that's why I wanted to give the context of how I go to McDonald's. I normally go there with some loose change on rare occasions so it hit me out of the blue moon where i'm like whoa this place got expensive out of the blue moon it's not too expensive it's just enough for me to notice Hmm. but what about other things do you notice prices rising there because they really will i mean i'm pretty sure they have harsh but it's not something that um noticing too much at the moment uh, unless it's directly affecting me where the gas i've noticed 
I know that house prices are increasing. I do notice my precious McDouble's prices are increasing. <laughs> but yeah, other than that, I mean, I'm sure that other things are increasing. But I don't know if it's like that much to a point where it's an apocalypse sort of scenario. Is that what you've been hearing? Yeah, so what I have been hearing is that it's getting really bad, especially now that the economies are starting to open up. People are spending all the you know lower value money, and we're about to see essentially the velocity of money hit the market, and things are going to get much pricier. That's what the economics, from what I understand, is going to. It, this is my understanding of economics, and this is what I think will happen. It has to have. It has to get expensive because they printed they printed a shit ton of money, and anyone with say an understanding of fractional reserve banking knows that one rupee or one dollar being printed has a multiplicative effect of like about a, a lot of money. It's usually if the SLR is say ten percent, then it's about that much. It's like well, it'll be about ten dollars or something. So things get more expensive and when the velocity of money will hit the markets what's happening right now is that people are at home they aren't spending that much money but when they go out and when they try to spend all them you know make make bucks or you know the free printed token by the u.s government it's it has to settle in the prices it, it cannot just disappear and i think that's one of the reasons the general public isn't noticing it too much harsh because a lot of shopping on a routine basis nowadays is done through places like Amazon, where with Amazon, you're sort of given that blind shield from where other people are charging certain money. You see what I'm saying? Mm. I don't know how popular Amazon is. It's in very popular. India. It's very, even in smaller cities and towns, you have Amazon delivering trucks of goods every single day. Okay, I was going to ask that. So do they deliver groceries now as well? Yeah, they do. And yeah. people have started ordering from them because it's cheaper and more convenient. You don't have to go anywhere. The goods come to your house and they give you extra discounts. Which is really bad for the local business, you know. Mm-hmm. Because they just can't compete. Amazon can keep making losses, but these guys who are running grocery stores, they can't make a loss. So this is really predatory pricing. I wonder what the future is going to look like for offline businesses. They're screwed. Unless they're like an experienced business, like a club, where people will just go there for experience, then they will still be around. But something like a shopping center, they're screwed. Well, there's another place by me. It's interesting that you brought up the club or just places that offered the experience because I know this one business owner who owns a coffee house in Tampa that's pretty much for business owners that want to network with one another. And apparently his business has been booming for the past uh, couple of months after the lockdowns were shut down in Florida. And more people just want to get out now and they want to network in person. So more people have been coming to his place. He offers coffee, uh, bagels, that sort of stuff. And his business has been doing rather well. So I think retail may take a hit, but I think the experience-based businesses are going to rise as long as they 
master their customer support, their service, which is important. Correct. I think that as well. I'm not fully convinced about this guy's business though, because this sounds like something that's temporary. You know, people are coming out of lockdown and they want to spend some money and go out. But once that is done, we will see whether this is something that people want to do for the long term. Because coffee shops are generally very tame places. I don't know about this guy's, but people usually go there. Oh yeah, if you if it's like a place where you can go and work, then maybe because people are getting tired of just sitting at home. So eventually, people will get into the habit of working from coffee shops. So it might actually work well. So his business is unique, where it's not only a coffee shop, Harsh. He also allows local people in Tampa to come speak as well. So a, I would say two years ago, I was asked to speak in masterminds that are hosted there. And a mastermind is a collection of different groups of people who discuss ideas. So I was invited to speak in the coffee shop in order to you know, talk about social skills, how to network in the business scene, et cetera. And that's what I noticed about this guy, where he doesn't only brand himself as the coffee guy. He brands himself as coffee, but there's a lot of business deals which are being made there as well. And there's a small community as well. Hmm, so he's running like a mini Twitter. Sort of. He's also a, uh, he has a law practice. So he has this um, blog on asking or answering a lot of law-related questions. So that's his main focus. The coffee business is pretty much his side hustle. Hmm, that's very interesting. This place sounds cool. <laughs> Do you have a lot of entrepreneurial people in India? As a percentage, no, but they aren't very rare either. There are some entrepreneurs in India. But usually entrepreneurs in India are they don't think so big so if you ask the average person when he wants to start a business he thinks it's more like a retail shop or you know some trading business where he's going to buy something from China and just sell it when there's no innovation in there there are very few people in India who are thinking you know in an innovative way where they're trying to come up with something new or there are certain places where tech is very big. So in those places, yeah, there are a lot of tech entrepreneurs, but the general public doesn't really try to innovate too much. I think innovation is something that's more of a white person thing in the sense that white people tend to really value entrepreneurship and innovation and people in the East, like in India, People here tend to be more conservative, even in this regard, where let's say there's a parent, okay? So the parent will typically tell the kid that he should go for something safe, like a job or like working for the government, rather than do something very risky, like starting a business, especially starting a very new thing that has completely unproven. Were your parents cool with that? More or less. But I was always a very different kid. So, you know, I was never like the other kids. Mm -hmm. So for me, they kind of expected me to go into business. 
because I it would have been very difficult for anyone to conceive of someone like me to work for anyone else. Were you a troublemaker in school? Not exactly, but I was not. If I thought something was wrong, I would not agree to it, and I wasn't someone who was um, how do I put it agreeable. Yeah, agreeable, but there's also another word, uh, subordinate. I wasn't subordinate to people. Right. So it was just if someone knew my nature when I was a teenager as well, like they were, they, they could just tell that this guy will start a business. So that's what happened. I started a business. And, <laughs> but yeah, I haven't really met a lot of people like me. Indians are generally very uh, agreeable and timid, and they don't typically start their own businesses. Well, what I do recall is that a lot of my Desi friends, Indian, Pakistani, Bengali, they're typically, you know, choosing from being either engineer or doctor. And doctor is like that golden standard for a lot of Desi families. And I had this one friend who was pretty much on the verge of becoming a doctor. But around his final couple of, I would say, months or years, they have to do a thing called residency, I think. Mm. He, he was having second thoughts. He wanted to become a video game developer. And when he told his parents that, they were yelling at him. They're like, oh, what are you talking about? You're supposed to be a doctor. It's always been your dream to be a doctor. <laughs> and he's like... I love that. That's so Indian. The, the parent telling the kid what the dream is. <laughs> oh, 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 that's when the that's when he's like it was never my dream mom and dad it was your dream <laughs> I, I just pictured just some dramatic music playing in my mind <laughs> that's really funny though so what came of it what did the guy end up doing so he ended up dropping out and starting his own video game uh, i don't know what he does exactly but i do know he's doing pretty well at this point i think he consults with different gaming firms or he creates some designs and does freelancing for them. But it's a night and day difference from what he was planning on doing. But suddenly, that entrepreneurial bug hit him, and he had to change it up last minute. Hmm. And in the medicine field, it's not like you're just going to school for four years. I think you're going to school for, what, 10 plus years or so? Including residency, getting training, and all of that extra stuff? Yeah, I couldn't do that. You know, 10 years of school, no. Could you? Hell no, man. When I was in my master's uh, graduation, I remember they were trying to sell us on a PhD. They're like, and who's ready to come back to get their PhD? <laughs> it's an upsell. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> she was trying to upsell us, dude. Back then, I didn't understand the business side of college. But nowadays, so many things make sense. You Are know, more people... Go ahead. Who's going to come back for a PhD? <laughs> I, I feel like this is an advertisement, you know. <laughs> and a lot of positions, not all positions, but there are a few positions where if you're a PhD in the U.S. market, you're overqualified and you reduce your chances of getting jobs. It's much better to stop at master's level. And one thing... How does that work? Yes, if someone has a PhD, they can just say that I have a master's and get the job. See, that's what I thought. But I went to this one 
event a couple of years ago, and there was this one guy at the event who looked all bummed out, and he told me that his dad wasn't able to get a job for where he wanted to go. And when you're investing in a PhD, in your mind, you're thinking you're going to make a certain amount. So you getting paid, I would say, less than what you think you deserve may make you be like, well, I'm going to get, uh, I'm going to wait until I get paid what I'm worth. And this may cause more resistance. Mm. So I think you can technically just say, okay, I have a master's. You don't have to pay me PhD amount. But yeah, other but people you expect more money. Sent. I see. I have to ask, how much does the average PhD get paid in the US? It definitely has to be over six figures, depending no, per on... per hour, if you go with per hour, because I have something interesting here. Per hour? Man, I don't know the per hour, actually. Let my me check. F- my friend, um, who is a business, business associate of mine, he hires a guy who has a PhD in English for, mm-hmm. as a proofreader, and he pays him $25 an hour. And that is really low. Because I was expecting something way higher, but apparently PhDs are very cheap to hire. And moreover, you know, I pay people more than 25 bucks an hour, and these people aren't, aren't even that well-educated. So I have a guy who narrates audiobooks, and I pay this narrator about $100 an hour. Mm-hmm. And this guy has been paying a PhD $25 an hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm Googling it right now. It says that, I don't know which particular degree this is, but it says $51. That They said that's typically the range. I see. So that's not super high, you know, like you can make so much more money on the internet without having to have a PhD or any like insane amounts of formal education. If you have a good skill that you can, that you can help people with, people will pay you more. So like the guy who makes audiobooks and I have a graphic designer, web designers make even more than $50 an hour. Like a, web, a good web designer can make like $500 an hour because like a website he might charge like $5,000 for might only take 10 hours to make. So yeah, I don't think more education, more formal education is the way to go. If your goal is just to make more money or have more fun. If you if you want to do something like you want to become like a heart surgeon or something, then maybe you need like a, lo- a ton of education or some kind of nuclear scientists. But for most skills, I don't really think it matters. It's really about having the skill and finding a way to sell it on the internet. Man, that's a slap in the face when you spend so many years getting a PhD and then you hear that a person who's narrating your audiobook makes almost double what you make. Yeah, because, you know, the well, guy who's power, power making basis. the audiobook is actually adding value to a business. Well, this guy learned about the meaning of a preposition, which really isn't that valuable. So it's not really about how much you study. It's about what value you can add to and anyone. You know, if you if you are, say, looking for a job, then what how much value can you add to a business? Because I'm not running a charity, correct? I have to, you know, manage my expenses and I can only pay you so much like the upper limit of what i can pay you is the value you are generating and ideally i would pay you much less than that because i have to keep a margin so if i don't care about whether you're educated you could be like a com- the completely uneducated person only went to 
middle school and if you can provide me something that can help me make more money or make my business more efficient then i'm happy to pay you a lot but if you're providing a simple service that doesn't really add that much value and that is easily easily replaceable by someone else then i will not pay you a lot and it's that simple and people are very Whoops. surprised that they expect more education to equal more money but that's really not the case everywhere it's interesting that you say that harsh because i have been converting a lot of my amazon books into audiobooks as well and have you heard of acx i have i don't use it because amazon has very bad business terms so amazon wants like 75% of the sales right so with acx there's this one part where you could interview different narrators mm-hmm. to see who you want on your project so you make your posting live you give a small little script that you want these voices to read and they read it and i recall there was this one guy who was getting all fancy with it he was talking about i have done this particular book i have done this particular cartoon i have done these particular different shows and i'm like bro just read the damn script and let me decide if your voice fits the armani talks brand uh, book or not and there was another guy who was an up and comer and he read the book perfectly and i thought man this guy is not as qualified as the first guy but i'm going to work with him because he knows how to follow the order and he's giving me that skill that i'm looking for so for me personally i don't really care about too much of your background i'm looking at can you get the job done or not hmm So I have to ask Arman how come you're not narrating your own books because you have a great voice and you don't have the accent issue. So this is something that I may do down the line harsh but the whole process of narrating there's a process there's a learning curve you got to get certain technologies set up you got to work on different features. I did look into it and I have made it in a way where maybe down the line once i set up a full blown studio where it can easily meet the acx requirements then i could redo these books but for the time being harsh i have a lot of these ideas and grand books that i want to make in the upcoming years and it's more so a time issue i see yeah i have the same issue as well it's there's so much you want to do but there's not enough time in the day to do it all How do you handle that though? So for me personally harsh, I focus on what the bigger picture is. And I wrote this on my newsletter a couple of weeks back where I said that my dream for Armani Talks is literally just to focus on the ideas. Everything else I want to outsource. So something like this, me and you speaking right now, I like to do stuff like this. And this is the kind of stuff that I enjoy doing for Armani talks. But what I don't enjoy doing is going through the entire uh, podcast, putting the timestamps, yeah, finding it. the record. <laughs> yeah, uh, writing the description, uh, putting in the keywords. I don't want to do that. That's stuff that I want to outsource. So nowadays, I'm making most of my moves with that in mind. How can I keep maximizing uh, the process of getting more creative in terms of ideas? and how can i get the right people in my team 
to do the stuff that I don't want to do. Like I am awful in terms of graphic arts design. And you could tell from our first uh, three t- thumbnails from Unapologetic Truths versus now, <laughs> right? Mm. The first few I made. And these aren't the stuff that I want to do. So nowadays, Harsh, I pretty much structure my business in a very simple way. I have a four-step formula. Consume, create, market, meditate. So consumption is when I'm learning. Every single day, I'm either watching my old content back, I'm probably reading a book, watching an interview, something like that. Create is publishing daily something, either on my YouTube, my blog, my podcast, writing a chapter in a book, etc. Market is where it's not just enough for me and you to talk. I have to publish this on Friday. That's the making people aware of the content. And meditate is when I just turn off all technology and just focus on one target over and over to keep my mind sharp and build concentration. So those are my four most important tasks for the day. I see. So what do you think the future of the Armani Talks brand is? What are you trying to do in the future? So my goal, Harsh, is to make this a media company where it consistently publishes short stories that deals with soft skills. And a few of the soft skills that the Armani Talks brand focuses on is public speaking, storytelling, social skills, emotional resilience, creative writing, and concentration. I want to create more short-form content on that through the mediums of books, blogs, audiobooks, podcasts, etc. And that's pretty much what the model is growing towards. I don't want to just be known as a guy that's a, a guy who tweets or a guy who just does YouTube videos. I want it to be more so this universe that's a media company. But it's more particularly for short stories. I see. So do you in the future ever plan on doing something like a community of real people who meet up in real life and discuss and help each other like kind of your own version of Toastmasters for social skills? Man, Toastmasters should give me a check, man, because I have recruited so many people from around the world into that club. So who knows, man, maybe down the line, me and Toastmasters can work out some sort of deal. And we could see that part. But managing the community, Harsh, I mean, if I have someone else that's helping me with the logistics and stuff, then sure, I, I could see that being a, a situation where, do you know uh, Kanye West? He's some kind of singer. I have seen memes of him. I haven't heard his music much. Yeah, so, so he's a rapper. But nowadays, he's known for his shoes called Yeezys. So I believe he thinks of the ideas for the shoes. And I think it's either Nike or Adidas who fulfills it. So he doesn't have to focus too much on the small little details. He could focus on the bigger picture stuff. So if there's an organization like Toastmasters or another organization in the future that can take care of the logistics, like setting up an event page, putting in the description, sending the invites, etc., then... I personally would not mind creating something offline as well. That's something that I am going to consider more in the near future. I think you should because you could even charge for it. Like I would pay 
dollars just to go to an event with you. Oh, really? Yeah, I bet a lot of people would. If it's like, you know, the only issue with physical events is that it. Let's say that you are living in where? Where do you live? You said I don't remember Tampa or something. Tampa. Yes. Yeah. Your audience is scattered across the world, but only a very, very small portion of your audience lives around and, you know, in or around Tampa. So it's actually very difficult to get a critical mass of people because let's say your best followers are people who will actually pay for your event. You you need like 50 people to pay for the event for the event to happen, but those 50 people don't live near Tampa. So that's really difficult. That requires like a very big audience. So if you take someone like Jordan Peterson, if he did an event, then a lot of people will come. But if you take the average guy with 10,000 followers, his followers are so distributed across the world that in a particular city, he might only have 100 people who know of him and of which only maybe one will pay. Interesting. That's something that I'll definitely look into. For me personally, Harsh, from the way that I've thought about it, like I like communities, but I don't like communities that much. Where for me, the Armani Talks brand is highly decentralized on the front end and is highly centralized in the back end. And I think we all have that one place that we own, where for you, it's Telegram, right? Where most of your core audience is there. Telegram, my Twitter is my biggest platform but twitter is more of a rented platform in the sense that especially with their new ceo who looks like a complete soy boy there's a very good oh, chance uh parag or something uh, uh-huh. the guy's total soy like he has been talking about why he doesn't he's actually made a speech or something about him not wanting to be bound by free speech and why he wants to go in a different direction so there's a very strong chance we will see more censorship from him. So I I no longer think of Twitter as an important platform for me because, you know, I might get banned at any point of time. So I think my most important or my the platforms I really own and control are my email list, of course, because no one can take that away, and my website. And your website's been crushing it. It's been growing really fast. Although I haven't published anything in the last month because I was very busy with the decentralized finance course. And for me, Harsh, I mean, there was that one idea that you gave me in uh, the beginning of our interaction, which I think you got from Thomas or someone like that, where you said that the content is sort of like the flyer. And Who's Thomas? I don't know if you said the uh, Thomas Beaven. Oh, I remember that guy. Is he still around? I haven't spoken to him in years now. I, I'm not too sure. I, I just remember you said that that was his name when you told me the idea. Oh, that yeah. content. Content is the yeah, flyer. Like, and yeah, it's Twitter the flyer. Twitter is the flyer and the blog is the... I no longer believe that to be true. You don't think that's to be true? Why not? So when I look at... If you take... LMM as a business, okay, and I'm not talking about from a helping people sensor. I mean, like just as a business. Um, if you take from a business perspective, when you look at revenue, you get 
more money from different social media and telegram and your email list than you do from your blog so you know if you are in a situation where the flyer is making more money than the actual show then the sentence then the idea that social media is just the flyer no longer holds to be true so from a so, business perspective i no longer agree with this but i do think that if the social media did not exist then far fewer people will be on life math money the blog so it is true in that sense but from a business perspective it is not true so for me it's been different where i've made most of my money through my email list yeah but how do people get on your email list through twitter podcast blog and guest interviews that i do oh so you're saying that you make more money from your email list than you do from social media correct how much do you market on social media though because twitter is like it's very easy to make money on twitter like you want to make money just tweet that's it's it's that simple just tweet about some product i usually tweet about my own products because i know they're very very high quality because i made them but it's that simple on twitter yes uh, and i do agree with you that where i have made a significant amount of money from twitter and i have gotten a lot of my clients who discovered me through twitter but still just looking 5 to 10 years down into the future just the way that twitter and all these different algorithms change so much i would say uh, people who want to stay updated with the armani talks brand the newsletter is like the king and the heart of my brand where people uh, become more solidified with my ideas they can see me more in long form i get more most of my clients there uh book sales there ideas for future products etc and i do think harsh it really comes down to what someone's intent is where i think you're doing a smart job in diversifying where you have twitter do you still do instagram yes so i have a python script and what this script does is it takes automatically it goes on twitter it searches for my latest tweets it screenshots the tweet and then it puts it on instagram so it it's all automatic but i do instagram technically okay so you're pretty much getting traffic from multiple different sources and i'm sure different people are sharing your content and you're getting a lot of referral as well correct it's grown linearly over time although i do intend on growing my youtube more and more and more from now oh snap and i'm also trying to get an audience into that's beyond self improvement so i'm trying to get into crypto with the crypto course so i'm trying to expand my audience a lot because that's really the way forward you know you have to reach more people and if twitter is going to limit your growth and basically put you at risk of being banned at any moment at any moment then it you have to diversify and youtube and instagram and twitter are the way to go for me so what is uh, okay so would you say that's the future for your brand the near future maybe in the next year i don't know what it would look like in 2024 then that's simply because you know this pace moves really really fast so when i started twitter i thought i would get 10000 followers in a couple of years 
that was my goal a couple I, of years yeah, and i ended up hitting that in like three months three or six months i think so the space moves really fast and things change very very fast so a platform that's working well might just stop working or a platform that's not working at all might just blow up so the plan is for the next year i want to focus more on youtube and growing more than just twitter but let's see how things look like five years from now you ever see yourself having some sort of linkedin presence when I stop being a non, then yes. So I made a LinkedIn account. And what happened to me on LinkedIn was that they deleted my account saying that you're not allowed to have a pseudonym and you have to have your real name. Ah, I didn't know that. Yeah, so LinkedIn has this weird... But I get it, you know, that's what their thing is. But I do know a lot of people who make a lot of good money from LinkedIn, especially as freelancers. So. What happens on LinkedIn is that a lot of people there are business owners. So if you can say or show people that you are great at writing or some other skill, then a lot of business owners will reach out to you asking you to do the skill for them. So if you are great at copywriting and you can show people you're great at copywriting on LinkedIn, then people who own businesses will just DM you asking if you can do their page and they, they offer like great money. So I know people who make a lot of money freelancing with LinkedIn. I think there's a girl called Shriya Pattar and she has a book. She recently released a book called Mastering LinkedIn or something. Let me check. I bought her book. I haven't read it yet, but I know she does really well. So if someone's interested in doing that, they can check it out. Wait, let me confirm this. Um, our book is called, just a sec. I'm going on Gumroad. It's called Cashing In on LinkedIn, and it's on Gumroad. And you're taking that, uh, you're reading the book right now? I have the book. I just bought it to support her. I don't really intend to read her, read the book because I can't get on LinkedIn anyway. So what's the point? <laughs> I notice you subtly do that. You'll buy other people's products and for example, I remember one time, uh, it was for Charisma King. I think that was a particular book. I got a notification from it, and I noticed it was from Life Math Money. I was like, oh, damn, that's pretty dope. Life Math Money I supported the book. And I think this is when we were sort of getting to know each other, but we didn't really know each other too deeply. But I noticed you subtly support other people's products. It's because there's most, what are most people on the internet doing? They're fucking around. And they're not really helping people. But every once in a while, you do find someone who is trying to add value to people. And it makes sense to support them, you know. It's like giving back, like a, a thank you for what you're doing. Yes. And that's what friends are able to do. Where when I have a friend who's starting a business, I go out of my way to ask, yo, what is it that I can do to help you out? The last thing I'm asking for is, uh, can you please give me a discount? Uh, please, uh, I am your friend. And some friend circles are like that, where they're just begging the other person for a discount just because they're friends. Yeah, it's generally not a good thing to ask for a discount because it kind of reduces your self-respect in a way. And 
usually if your friend starts a business, the best thing is to just buy something at full price. And I know that because, you know, I'm in a business now and I really appreciate everyone who supported me when I was just starting out. So yeah, buy when if your friend starts a business, don't ask for a discount. Just buy at full price. And if you get offered a discount and you know you want to take it, that's up to you. But don't ask for it. How has your, your friends go ahead? Do your friends know you have a business? I do more than just life math money. So yeah, they know that I do affiliate marketing. I do internet marketing, to be honest. Affiliate marketing. But people don't really understand what affiliate marketing is, so I tell them it's internet marketing. It's it's one of those things, you know, people are just so behind. They have no idea what's happening on the internet. They think internet is just YouTube and, you know, jerking off to porn or whatever. They can't even mm-hmm. imagine making money off the net. So when I tell them I'm into affiliate marketing, you can see a question mark on their face. Like, what is this? And I don't want to waste my time answering questions. So I just tell them I I work on the internet or something very vague like internet marketing. Yeah, and you answer the question for, let's say, five to ten minutes, and then they'll summarize your point, and they still have it completely wrong. Like, man, what are you even listening to me? <laughs> yeah, it just, it kind of, you, you want to do that initially when you're just starting out because you're so excited about it, and you're passionately explaining what you do, but after a while, it gets tiring. Like, I just sell things on the internet. Like, that that suffices. Well, my personal goal with Armani Talks in the initial stages was to keep this separate from my personal life, where I focused on Armani Talks. And then personal life, if people asked, I'd bring it up. But it's not something that I'm over here trying to tell people. But what happened was a lot of people somehow just organically discovered it. And a lot of people, when when I was thinking about it, have been highly supportive, especially people that I thought would be over here turning into a joke fest. Like, oh, Armani does this. But they were supportive. They're like, dude, I watch all of your YouTube videos. I listen to your podcast with that fellow, Harsh uh, Strongman. And, you know, my parents uh, consume the content. So that's not something that I was initially expecting, which... It's definitely different because in the beginning stages, that was not even in my perspective at all. I thought the two worlds were going to be completely different. And nowadays I see them gradually merging. Hmm. I think that's a natural progression of things, you know. I think that at some point you leave your old identity behind and you become your brand. Yeah, and I would say I'm pretty much the same guy online and offline. No, but I bet are... when you started, it was a little, a bit of an exaggeration. Well, in the beginning stages, so here's what I've noticed. It's similar with public speaking, where in the beginning, you're trying to find out who you are, and more importantly, you're trying to create who you are. So certain things you're saying, it's kind of like who you want to that be. feeling it's that feeling out process where you're like, okay, no, this sounds right. No, no, this doesn't sound right. Because nowadays, Harsh, when I'm consuming my old content from, let's say, 2019 or even 2018, I'm thinking, man, is that really me? Because you know, now you can see your evolution in real time. 
Definitely. You know, I recently, I had an assistant of mine pull up all of my tweets from all the way from 2018. And what I was trying to do was I was trying to create an audiobook of my tweets. And I was reading, I was selecting which tweets to include. And I was reading all my older tweets. And I don't agree with a lot of them anymore. So I think of it as personal growth, you know. So not that I disagree with everything I said. I just feel like I was missing a lot of nuance back then. And now, Any particular tweet come to mind? Uh, yeah, for example, when I say... Uh, earlier like i remember tweeting this a lot of times was i used to think fat people are fat because they're stupid and they don't really understand the fact that if they want to lose weight they have to eat less and <laughs> i still believe that to an extent but i also have a better understanding of when you are habitual to eating food you will feel hungry even though you've eaten a lot. And that's what these guys' entire existence has been. And since it's been that way for many, many years, they have forgotten what it was like to be normal. So they think this is normal. They think eating continuously is normal. So it isn't really a decision based on IQ, but more of what you consider to be normal and People are people who are fat are usually just mindlessly following their instincts. Like they feel hungry, they eat, and they feel hungry again, they eat, and they feel hungry again, they eat. And they never stop feeling hungry because they have trained themselves to continuously eat. And that is something that I did not appreciate back in 2018. And a lot of things like this, I think I was just missing more nuance, which I have gained over the past three, four years. And I think that is just normal, you know. I think if you are not doing that, then that means something has gone wrong and you have not, you're not improving, you are stagnating. Absolutely. There's people that are like, I haven't changed my mind in 10 years. I'm thinking, man, bro, that's not something to say out loud. You should be changing your mind if the right information is presented. And as you're growing up, I doubt a person has all the answers at a certain age. So they should be reevaluating certain positions. I remember reading this quote from Charlie Munger where he says that we know a hell lot more than we did five years ago. And I think this guy said this quote when he was like 80 years old or something. And, you know, so this guy, you know, when you think from our perspective, I'm 25, I think you're around the same age. 75 and 80 are the same age for us. 75 and 80 are the same age but for this guy he says that he has learned a hell lot more in the past five years so it's see if you are always learning and you know trying to get better then this seems like a lifelong process yes tell me what is something that you thought was correct back in 2018 or before which you think you were wrong about one thing harsh has been more so in terms of the delivery, where I also did something similar, where I had pulled up a lot of my old tweets. And I noticed that back in the days, I used to curse a lot more. And it's not like I don't curse nowadays. Every now and then I do. But I have taken a different approach where I don't curse as much. Because the more that I've evolved, I've 
you know, gotten different DMs from different followers, different email messages, where people are like, I watch my I watch your YouTube videos with my kids every Saturday. And if I'm over here dropping F bombs nonstop, it's just at the back of my mind. You know what I'm saying? Mm. And a part of me, as I was talking about, where the two worlds are merging more, where Armani talks, uh, there's a lot of personal uh, life people that know about it. I mean, down the road, when I have kids, for example, or great grandkids, or great, 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 great grandkids, because information doesn't corrode, if they're over here seeing their great, 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 great grandpa dropping F-bombs nonstop, it's probably going to distort the message to a certain degree. Where nowadays, I'm more aware. It's not like I don't curse, but I'm more deliberate in terms of when I do drop certain words. And I think this has been a progression where if you told me this two to three years ago, it's not something that my raw energy would have been able to understand because I was still trying to create the voice. But nowadays, I understand it to a larger degree. And by changing the dynamic a little bit more, I've been able to think differently as well and alter the delivery style. So that's one thing that I would say I've changed since our first interaction. I see. But do you find yourself changing like a major opinion you used to have back in the day? So for me, changing a major opinion, I wouldn't say I know too many opinions like that yet. However, I have softened up certain opinions where in the beginning stages, I was very harsh on victim mindset people. Uh, people that constantly point fingers and are like, man, why aren't you taking care of me? I, and they're nitpicking people that are successful. Where nowadays, it's not like I condone their behavior by any means, but I do understand that changing the mind, it's a difficult process. And I come to understand that victors are rare. Where guys like you and me who or just our side of Twitter in general, it's probably 0.0001% of the entire Twitter sphere. So nowadays, I'm more aware you in know, regards to that. That might not be true. If you take Twitter, like if you run the numbers, the percentage is higher. Oh, is it higher? What do you think it is? I think the status of Twitter's monthly active audience is about 300, 350 million. And I would bet we have 1 million people in our sphere. I have 250,000 to 60,000 people who follow me. Or if you take bigger accounts like Zuby or even Jordan Peterson, I would bet there's like 1 or 2 million people. So if you want to be charitable and say that some of them haven't found us yet or combine people's unique followings, I would say... 0.75% of people on Twitter are like us. Or not like us in the sense that at least they're interested in self-improvement. Oh, that's good news then. See, I have a very mathy brain. You know? <laughs> when someone says a statistic, I actually try to calculate. Oh, I made I made up the number completely. <laughs> it was just an arbitrary number that I was throwing out there. But it's good that the number is higher than it once was. And the more that I realized... What what was the number you said? Like 0.02% or something? 0.75. Yeah, and 0.75% 
you superimpose this into the real world, a lot of people are not thinking like us. So nowadays, one thing that I do more often is give general advice as well. It's not normally just centered around leveling up. It's other things to be social. Stay updated with the culture. You don't have to completely vilify all mainstream narratives. And even if uh, the narratives are to be vilified, which, trust me, I do not agree with a whole bunch of them, I still think being aware is important because now you can converse with other people. If you're a guy, for example, and all you do is just improve your life and you don't know much about what's happening around you, then let's say you're going on a date or some sort of social event and you're over here just talking about your interests, that's not going to be pleasant. So I would say I've always created more content for the general. That's what the Armani Talks brand is about. But nowadays, I try to highlight the importance of understanding that not everyone thinks like us. You know, that's a big mistake that people who think like us actually make. They assume that everyone wants to self-improve. And I will tell you, I'll give you an example, okay? If you go to any performance where like friends are singing or whatever, okay? People like us, your general instinct would be to give them advice on what they're doing wrong and how to improve. Because our presumption is that this guy wants feedback so that he can get better. And most people just get annoyed by that because they think you're criticizing them. They don't want to get better. They were just trying to have fun. Mm -hmm. So in my experience, unless you know someone who is into self-improvement or, you know, they ask you for feedback, you're best off just telling them that they're doing well. Yes, I actually wrote a tweet on the matter as similar to what you just said. I said, beware of giving too much feedback to someone who didn't ask. From your mind, you care. From their mind, you're nitpicking. Exactly. And these are things, you know, you learn over time. Like, I did not know this three years ago. This is something that I learned from experience over a long period of time. And that's why I find value in those accounts that show their losses as well. Because if you're over here deifying yourself too much and all you're doing is winning, winning, and winning some more, then I can't learn much from you. I like those accounts that talked about messing up and how they learn from it anyways. It's more relatable. I think to an extent, yes. I do think that a lot of these accounts tend to, you know, go to the realm of like I was born as an extremely poor kid and I'm a trillionaire now, so you can buy my course. <laughs> like I was just like you and now I'm this by my course. So sometimes it's true. Like sometimes it really is true, but it really depends. What kind of accounts earn your follow? I like accounts that are adding some new conversation or some new value or some type of insight from experience rather than people who are just copy pasting my own stuff or, you know, aren't really being, aren't really adding that much value. Or I like account. So if you take someone like uh, Naval, Naval is a good read account to follow and 
his advice comes from real world experience like shrinivasan balaji yeah that guys to uh, tell your son this his advice is really really good comes from experience and you know it's very unique you won't find it anywhere else even the rational mail is like that and a lot of newer accounts i've seen like there there's a bunch of newer accounts like masculinity rediscovered and the lovers guide and all of these accounts they're, they're adding something new to the conversation that i haven't seen before being discussed but there are a lot of copy paste accounts as well who i don't follow or so there's this type of account that i like there's also accounts i like that are more humorous or you know making fun like boys like you know guys posting their wins or girls posting their losses like that is really funny or babylon b which is making satirical news which is turning out to be not so satirical <laughs> as it's actually becoming true mm-hmm. um there are also guys i follow like uh, you know who talk mostly politics but i don't really read their tweets i have them on mute usually and i just follow them just to just to maintain the relationship yeah i don't particularly care about politics like i don't even know who the president of india is like i just don't care do people hit you up and they're like yo life math money what am i going to get a follow yeah those guys i don't follow <laughs> i never asked you but i was meaning to ask you let me just see how much followers you have nowadays how is it mentally having a twitter account which has 260,000 followers do you get bombarded with a lot of messages or how is it like because i do remember you running a post on the matter when you had less followers have you used whatsapp before yes you have this thing no whatsapp series and it tells you how many people have seen this uh it does yeah. i normally do one on one i don't do group chats it has so. the ability to where you can set a status and it it'll tell you how many people have seen your post okay on whatsapp and mm-hmm. I did that a while ago for some event or something and it had like 2-300 people who saw it. It was showing me the number and for me it wasn't just registering. Like 2-300 like what that, that that's super low for me. And mm-hmm. it just wasn't registering because I'm used to posting something and having like 30, 50, 80, 90, 250,000 people see it or sometimes even in the millions. So for me that number wasn't making sense. But really humans or even everyone in general we can't really think in numbers so big. So for me 250,000 is just a number now. It's not 250,000 people listening to me because that's impossible to visualize. I can't visualize that. So when it when my follow count was 700 I could actually visualize 700 people but 250,000 is just an abstract number. Mm-hmm. Because when you're over here giving a best man speech at a wedding, that's roughly around 300 to 350 people. And when you're giving that speech live, that's a lot of people for you. You know what I'm saying? That's an event. And nowadays when you're trying to picture, oh whoa, I have way more multiples of that people following me on a Twitter account, your mind actually can't process that. Yeah, it's something your mind was not built for. Like historically you'd never had to deal with so many people. 
like unless you were the king or something but you know those guys were so rare that it didn't factor into our genetics like the average we did not evolve to be you know thinking in millions of people i think the statistic is that the average village there's a number of how many relationships you can hold and i think the number is like 150 there's there's a number like some some the idea is that the average village you would know if you live in a village like a small village you would, you know everyone in the village and mm-hmm. there's only so many people whose names you can remember and you know who you can actually know outside of just knowing them their name in the sense that you know when you know a person you know what they like dislike and how they are and there's only so many people you can know like that and i think the number is about 150 so a quarter million is just incomprehensible to me at least so for me it's just a number i just tweet for what i want to tweet i want to help people but i don't i don't particularly think about the number because it is impossible to think about the number i think that is a good insight to know because I, from your perspective it's just another number but let's say someone is just starting up their twitter account for them they see something colossal and they can't perceive how you could possibly think it's just a number but from your life since you're actually experiencing it it really is just a number at this point it doesn't influence your tweets or anything it's really like what you said arman you remember the indian guys who were thinking this party is mind blowing party is mind blowing <laughs> and for you it was just normal it's like that so for me it's yes. just i'm used to tweeting to a lot of people now so i don't really think about it but for someone who is new for them it might give them some performance anxiety and a lot of negativity gets engaged as well where they're thinking that if they say something stupid now 250,000 people are just going to be pointing their fingers and laughing it's where fine, yeah. you're like who cares <laughs> who cares see it's like if you are big in any sphere okay if you have like a large number of people who have their eyes on you a significant portion of them are not going to like you and that's okay and it's just how it is you know like even if you take a politician they have like a 50% approval rating so 50% of people really don't like them and that's fine as long as you're doing what you want you're happy in your life why does it matter what other people think it doesn't So it's just one of and those things you have to get used to. Those people who hate you, they'll look for the most random reason to hate you as well. Yeah, I Where, think it usually is when people hate you, it's usually a reflection of their own life because why would you hate someone on the internet? Like I don't see myself hating someone on the internet ever because why would I do that? I would just ignore them and live my life and do what I want to do. So when people vehemently hate you where they go out of their way to post some negative tweet you know their life is not going well because if it was why would they do it mhm so what is your perspective on this do you find yourself seeing a lot of haters or do you find yourself being able to comprehend your follow count well i could f- comprehend it at this point harsh because it's not colossal or anything like that like yours How and much is it? I have I don't remember. I think it's at like 40,000 or something. That is big. Like imagine a room of 40,000 people. That is oh, big. Yeah. 
you can't Absolutely. visualize it. I don't think you can. At least I cannot. Well, here's how it works. And I'm sure you've noticed it too, where yes, you have 40,000 people following you, but each tweet, for example, yeah, is not seen by 40,000 people. Correct. It used to right. be the case and, that it would, but nowadays it isn't. Yeah. And since I tweet a good amount where I pretty much treat the Armani Talks Twitter page sort of like a journal, I get my impressions spread out through each tweet. So it's not like a colossal amount of people are even looking at each tweet. So for me, for the most part, it's been rather a normal experience. And another thing with the Armani Talks brand is that it's not, I would say, anything that's controversial. It's actually the things that unify human beings. I think most of the content that I cover was relevant 2,000 years ago, as well as it will be relevant 2,000 years from now, such as learning how to speak, writing writing efficiently, learning how to hear properly, not interrupting others. These are core skill sets that are not trendy or anything. They're fundamental skill sets. So thus far, I haven't had too many haters. I have had some, but it hasn't been enough for me to take notice. Usually it's best to just block them, you know. It just... Or, you know, mute them or something and let them have you speak into the void. You know, I have this. I have a couple of people who were essentially sending me hate emails telling me, like, this tweet is bad and you're an idiot and whatever. So I decided to block them. So <laughs> when you block someone on Gmail, what happens is that their emails directly go into your spam folder. Like, you, you can still read those emails, but they end up in spam. And, like, it, it, it was, like, a year ago, and I and I was just checking my spam f- folder like recently, like a couple of days ago, and these guys are still sending me emails, and that's so funny. <laughs> well, what are they saying? <laughs> oh, it was just crap. Like you know, they were like quote a tweet and saying this is moronic or whatever, and they were like going to a paragraph of why this is nonsense, and it's usually some kind of crap like this is sexist, misogynistic, whatever, and that was a year like. This guy has been messaging me for a year. And Was I didn't even know he existed. I don't know, I assume. So I and I and I did not even know he was, you know, he was alive. I just blocked him when his first email came. And then I was clearing my spam out a few days ago and here he is. <laughs> what a loser. Let me ask you, Harsh. Are there certain comments or names that you're called which do get under your skin let's say misogynist for example not really misogynist is a funny one because i am actually not a misogynist in the sense that i like women and i want to help them and i am helping women it's just that feminists think what is actually good for women is bad for women so you know women want to have children and they want to be married and they want a family that is what most women want but feminists think women want, you know, a career and they think saying women wanting a family is hateful of women. So I don't particularly care about that label. I don't think any of those labels hurt me. My life is, to be honest, and I'm not, I'm not trying to brag here, but my life is just so good and I make too much money and, you know, I don't work all that much and I spend enough time with my family and my nutrition and fitness is on point. 
my life is just so good that i really don't really care about what people on the internet have to say for me because i know i'm helping out so many people and usually the gratitude to hate ratio is 10 to 1 so i'll get 10 messages from people telling me how much i've helped them or i helped them start their business or i helped them lose weight or i helped them you know raise their children better or my crypto course really helped them or whatever so the gratitude to hate ratio is like 10 to 1 so it really doesn't matter i wish more people thought like that because i was watching this one prankster couple of does something weeks get ago. under your skin the what is there a term which goes under your skin no um you know i don't want to brag or anything either <laughs> we're we're going on a bragging fest <laughs> no but um for me personally dude i take pride in the ability to ignore things that do not benefit me because i think there's multiple paths towards building thick skin Three to be exact. One is to do difficult tasks. Two is to do nothing, and three is to build a sense of humor. Although one seems like the most difficult, where oh, you're you doing tough one? stuff. Sorry, can you repeat what you said for one? Yeah, so one is doing difficult tasks. Like let's say you hate public speaking, and now you are like practicing public speaking. Zone. Yes, this builds thick skin over time. It does wonders for your confidence. but the second one is highly potent where you do nothing let's say i call you let's say i'm over here calling you an idiot throughout this entire podcast and you have to exercise restraint and you try to keep the podcast going without insulting me back that's going to require a whole bunch of restraint however if you do it correctly it's going to build thick skin and humor is just self explanatory if someone's over here making fun of you and you turn them into a joke either mentally or you're just joking at them another way to build thick skin so i take my a lot of pride in that harsh where i believe i've done difficult tasks i've ignored the right people where i opted not for revenge and you know your boy thinks he's a funny guy every now and then where i've been able to cultivate that thick skin where nothing really gets under my skin and i think that leads for more creativity i channel a lot of emotions into the armani talks brand so good bad emotions it doesn't really matter to me and here's a weird thing that i do i think every now and then when i do get let's say a hate comment or something every now and then i will screenshot it because for some reason it makes me more creative where i have the gratitude comments the mean comments at this point i still haven't blocked a single account because these people give me more energy so nothing really gets under my skin and well not that i'm aware of yet but that's a long answer to your question no hmm i really love what you said the ability to ignore things that don't benefit me that's incredible you know you people need to think like that There was this one time this semi big account and I don't want to name drop him or anything was pretty much attacking me. He was saying that oh Armani Talks is not a good account. He sucks and he's basically just uh, name calling me a lot. And this was the era, I don't know if you remember, where there were certain accounts that were egging on bigger accounts to block them. 
So he was basically trying to get me to block him. And a lot of his followers were pretty much coming on my tweets, talking about how idiotic my tweets are. And I never blocked the guy. So a couple of days starts to go on by. And this time, this semi-big account tags me. And he's like, no block, no response, much respect from Armani Talks. And all his little minions starts to say, yeah, yeah, it takes restraint not to block and not to respond back. And I thought how hilarious this was. Because imagine if I did respond back to this guy uh, going on uh, this verbal warfare. I don't gain anything because I'm over here giving this man clout and he gains a lot and I lose energy where I did the opposite. I didn't say anything back. And ironically, this ended up getting his respect more. So human emotions work in strange ways. It's not the same rules of logic. It's a non-linear way of thinking. So ignoring is powerful. And this is why revenge is not smart. Where let's say a guy gets backstabbed by a friend or a girl. The best thing you could do is ignore and start leveling up. Focus on that. Hmm. I will say that, Arman, it's usually best to block them because they ruin the experience for your actual followers because they clog up your replies with nonsense. So I block anyone on site in the sense that if you leave me a negative comment for no reason, like calling me a misogynist or, you know, whatever sexist, you will be blocked almost instantly. Like if I see your I will block. How big is your, how big is your blocked accounts at this point? Any rough estimate? A couple thousand at least. Damn. Let me check. Is there any way to check this number? I think there is a way to check it. Let me see. There are like thousands. I, I block a lot of people. And that's because I just don't have time to deal with nonsense, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I don't care about their respect. It's like being respected by dogs. Like it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Do they ever make burner accounts uh, trying to get back at you? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, how do I check? I'm in security and account access. Security. Uh, back. No. Privacy and safety. Scrolling down, 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 down. Um, I don't know how to check. Sorry. So I think it's on privacy and safety. Privacy and, and safety. Do, do you oh, have a Newton section called safety? Blocked accounts. Okay, so I can see a big list, but I don't see a number. Ah, apparently you can import block lists. <laughs> You're going to do a follow-up sequence harassing them now. No, not really. <laughs> no, it's, it's, not, it's not worth the time. Like, Why would I do that? Oh, yeah, but well, at this point, I, I would bet this list is at least 5,000 people. I don't know for sure, but probably. So you were telling mm-hmm. me about some guy you were pranking with or something? Pranking what? You, you mentioned when I interrupted you, uh, you said that you were hanging out with a prankster or watching a prankster. Oh, yeah. So I was watching this prankster and I wrote an email about him, which I called the funniest YouTuber. And I personally find him hilarious. He's one of the few guys that does real pranks. And he was popping around the 2012 to 2013 era. And I actually ended up meeting him. What was the name? Because Uh, 
If it's a limitless, twelve, I limitless, might limitless exp. Oh, no idea. So, when I visited Vegas, apparently, you know, he was like this big celebrity, and there were people trying to take pictures with him. And I briefly met him, said what's up, but I didn't know he made YouTube videos like that. Later on, I ended up getting introduced to his channel, and I was hooked. By the way, I don't know if it's 2012 or 2016 where he was popping, popping. This is when pranks were big. And I was laughing hysterically on each one of his videos. And then I just stopped watching him for a couple of months to a couple of years. And I saw that his last video was titled, Why I Stopped Making YouTube Videos. And the summary of that was that, yes, he wanted to travel more and do other activities. But a large part of it was due to the hate comments that he was getting on the Twitter comments where people were like, oh, man, you already did this prank already. Uh, Come on, man. You got to upload more consistently. Ah, man, this prank sucked. And even though he had a lot of fans like me and a lot of people who were commenting positive stuff, he was unfortunately focusing on the negative stuff, which led him to quit. And I don't think he's posted in, I would say, four years or so. But personally for me, man, he's my favorite prankster on YouTube. Hmm. I can definitely see negative comments getting under people's skin, especially women's skin. Like if, if there's a woman making content on the internet, women women tend to take negative comments very personally. And I know that because I have business associates who are female and they will sometimes, you know, quote a screenshot of a tweet that's negative and ask me if this is true and what I think of it. And sometimes they will almost be in tears. So women will take um, negative comments very, very personally, most of them. But men will take it too, but less so. So men have more resistance. But eventually, I think if someone is taking it personally, it's going to get to them. You just have to realize that this is normal on the internet. This is the internet. (laughs) Well, that's what I was going to ask. You think it's a woman thing or a people thing? It's a people thing. It's a people thing because, you know, even men have emotions and they do take it personally, at least most of them on some level do, unless you're a psychopath. But women will take it far more personally than men will. And, you know, and this is just from my experience with dealing with females who are in the same content creation business as I am, where women women will get messages like, you look ugly and things like that. And things like that affect women. They really do affect women. So you call a woman who is a little chubby fat and she will feel very upset. You call a man who is chubby fat and he's going to probably not notice that much. And yeah, I mean, I I definitely have noticed different reactions from different people where uh, certain people let it get to them and other people are able to brush it off rather quickly. One of the things that being too emotional is a liability when you are on the internet and having a very thick skin is an asset. So for example, if you take me on Life Math Money, 
I get mobbed all the time. I have like entire mobs calling me whatever different name and I just don't care. I'll put a sealed suite under it and I'll, you know, monetize it, but I just, it doesn't affect my feelings that much. But other people, even anonymous females, it does affect them. The, man, I was going to say something. I just forgot. (laughs) Think of what you were thinking of when you were about to say that. No, it was going to tie into one of the other points where, okay, I actually got it. So we hear about sexual transmutation a lot. And I believe you actually bring that up in one of your books, Mm -hmm. right? Where you're using your sexual energy in order to create. I have a blog article called Rage Transmutation, where it's not just anger, but you're feeling rage, like you are pissed. And the ordinary response is to use that in order to lash out. But if you could just hold it in and you have some sort of creative outlet, whether it's bodybuilding whether it's making YouTube videos, whether it's creating a podcast, something, just that small little lapse where you turn that energy into a form of creation, you're able to change your perception. I don't know if you know this, Harsh, but during moments of trauma, people go into hyper-learning mode where let's say you had something highly embarrassing happen to you. At that moment, your brain releases some sort of chemicals which allows it to absorb information at rapid rates. It's sort of like right after you're done working out, you normally get a protein shake. Right after you're in a heated, intense, a traumatic moment, the last thing you probably want to do is learn. But that's actually the best time where you have to, you could remind yourself of something that you've been trying to learn and you'll absorb it much easier. So that's one concept that I bring up in my blog article called Rage Transmutation. I'll drop it in the description box or you can go on armanitalks.com and check it out. And it honestly teaches you how you can use trolls and all these different people that hold you back as a tool for more creativity. Agree. I'm not fully convinced about rage and learning because in my experience, and I don't get angry much nowadays, but you know, back in my teenage years, I would have more hormones and I would, you know, get pissed off it becomes very difficult to focus on anything after you get say extremely angry and pissed and frustrated then you just want to go to sleep (laughs) well that's where you want to control your breath too where you don't just want to control your emotions with your mind that's difficult but if you could improve your body language smile a little bit more use your breath to your advantage then your breath actually serves as this remote controller for your emotional states. So it's different for different people. It's not something that you want to immediately do, but it's a concept that you want to gradually introduce to yourself rather than lashing out and doing something that you're going to regret. Hmm. I agree there. I think that being able to control your emotions, especially when you get angry, is an extremely important skill because... When you get angry, you're not thinking straight and you you basically do things you regret later. So mm-hmm. I think that is a very valuable skill. I'm not fully sure if we can take the emotion of anger and apply it into more productive things, except the gym, of course. That is a place where being rage, for an ang- rage and angry is a good thing because that's going to help you lift heavier and harder. 
Well, that's where I think you and I disagree, Harsh. Well, no, I agree with the lifting part, but I do think anger can be used for stuff like lifting along boxing. with boxing. Like you can use it for boxing. Boxing, content creation as well, from my experience. Hmm. I haven't really had you. that much experience with that, so can't really comment. Let me ask you. So you said you used to get angry. Um, was it a certain age? Yeah, when I'm I was like to see something. 14, 15, 16 years old. So like, okay, I noticed that a lot from different kids where I believe there was this one talk we were having where we said around a certain age, kids get bullied a lot. I also noticed that at a certain age, kids get these rage moments a lot or anger moments. Did you notice that? Yeah, I think it has something to do with, you know, puberty hormones. Like you have, your body is essentially changing at a very rapid rate. And there's too much new things coming in your life. Plus, you know, in those days, you also have school and exams. And, you know, so it's like a pressure situation for you. So all in, I, I don't, I do I not particularly like those years. I think before, the, I would say age 13 to 15 maybe was the worst time of my life. 13 to 15? What about you? Like, what was the worst period of your life? For me, it was 14 to 16. Yeah, so about the same period. Yes. And do you want to explain why for you and I'll explain why for me? It was just, I hated school. <laughs> I hated waking up in the morning and I really did not look forward to it. I, I remember I would every, I would wait until Friday and I would almost be depressed on Sunday evening because I would have five straight days of school. So I hated school. And mm-hmm. I didn't have that many friends in school and I would like get bullied a little bit here and there. And it wasn't that much fun. And... It was a time where I lacked any semblance of social skills. I was almost autistic in the sense I was very good at math and, you know, computers. And I was very nerdy. But I didn't have many friends and I would feel alone. Plus having the whole exams and everything. I really did not enjoy that period of my life. I I, I just did not. Like I, I could tell you that I had like a fun childhood, which I really did. My childhood was a lot of fun, but those particular ages were terrible. Right. And that actually is pretty similar for me, where I would say 14 to 16-ish, those were the ages where my body wasn't right, where I used to be five foot three, right? Pretty short. And I used to get mocked by a lot of the other kids who were like, whoa, man, you're one of the shortest boys in our class. And that was a period where I was getting joked on left and right. And I wouldn't say I was a good looking kid. So I wasn't getting much attention from women either. And then suddenly, Harsh, I would say from 15 to 16, I go from five feet three to six foot. Suddenly. Right. And it was funny because my grandpa and my dad used to tell me that if you play a lot of basketball, you will grow. And I didn't know if they were joking or something. But back then, dude, I believed it. From everything in my mind, I'm like, 
yeah, they have a point. If I play basketball, I'll grow. So I don't know how much a role that belief had because going from five foot three to six foot is not a normal sort of growth spurt. It's a pretty intense growth spurt. But another problem happened where when you go from five foot three to six foot, now you're skinny. Now you have these growing pains trying to grow into these new bones. And I'm over here, six foot tall, 130 pounds. And now people are making fun of me for being too skinny. skinny. (laughs) If people want to make fun of you, they will find something. Yeah, but here's... Go ahead, sorry. Well, here's the thing. So this was now a polarized moment because since I was tall and skinny, the guys made fun of me a lot. But this was the first time in my life where I was starting to get attention from girls, where there was this pretty chubby chick I used to hang out with named Eileen. And she was oh, I like, hope she doesn't I, watch the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, we used to call her Smiley Eileen. And she knew me when I used to be short. So she was stunned when I grew this tall out of the blue moon. And one day I'm chilling in class and she comes and sits next to me like sort of, sort of proud mom. And she's like, you know, a lot of the girls think you're cute now, right? I was like, who? She's like, you. I was like, yeah, right. No girls think I'm cute. And back then, we had these notes, right? We didn't have text. So we would write notes on a paper. And she dumped all these different notes on my desk. And all these different girls are over here talking about me saying, oh, you know, uh, Armand's pretty cute. Yeah, he's really tall. And at that point, I grew up my hair. But that was like that stage, Harsh, where I was finding myself. So I didn't like it too much, but it was a necessary step. Definitely necessary, you know, definitely necessary. But, um, you know, I just noticed something that you said, that people are making fun of you, that you were skinny. And that really is the case when people want to make fun of you, they will find something. And there's this guy called Corporate Machiavelli on Twitter who is off Twitter now because he's he has a terminal disease and he's about to die. Have you heard of him? Wait, really? Man, I love Corporate Machiavelli. He used to actually give a lot of words of encouragement when me and you would release his podcast. He'd say, great job. Keep it up. Oh, is that so? Okay, so he stopped tweeting, of course, because he has cancer and he's going to die very fast. So he ah. wants to dedicate the rest of his time to his family. And this is public knowledge. That's what he said, told everyone. So corporate Machiavelli. So, you know, I get brigaded by random people on Twitter, correct? Like random groups like lesbians or gay people or feminists or whoever. And often these people will assume that I'm 50, 60 years old and they will call me uncle. Like this guy's an Indian uncle and that's why he thinks this to be true. And corporate Machiavelli was telling me that these guys just don't like you. And that's why they're making fun of you by calling you uncle. If they knew you were 25, they will say, what does this guy know? He's 25. He's a kid. <laughs> so so either way, you're going to get hate. Yeah, either way, you're going to get hate. <laughs> <laughs> there was this Facebook post, Harsh, where uh, there was a debate that was happening uh, from... <laughs> fat shaming versus skinny shaming and it was getting heated because i forgot what the post was but they were talking about how dangerous skinny shaming is and someone writes a comment so you're saying fat shaming is not dangerous 
and someone yeah, else writes yeah, that's what i'm saying bitch <laughs> and someone else writes skinny shaming is not even a thing and other people are like are we really comparing the two do you have no heart and they're over here debating and from my personal experience i was never fat to a point where i was getting fat shamed i was probably chubby at certain stages but bro i got skinny shamed like none other by uncles aunties friends family and you know nowadays i don't really care but back in those days man it actually can take a take a hit on your self esteem if you don't use it to level up in some way skinny shaming is a thing i agree i in fact i was dating this girl who was very skinny because i'm into that and she would tell me that her family would basically encourage her to eat more and call her say that she's too thin and she needs to gain weight so yeah and it did affect her so i know that it affects people for a fact it's just for someone like me who spent a lot of time dealing with you know being chubby it doesn't register being skinny mhm and the opposite is true for me when someone's like being fat like how do you get fat how is this even possible or you get shamed and for me it just doesn't register cuz i could lose weight quickly while there's a the opposite problem that happens as well you know with fat people you can if so for example arman if you're skinny but you wear a shirt and a pants the people most people can't really tell that you're extremely skinny because your shirt kind of covers it up but when someone no, is no 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 i i would say that's not accurate from my experience no? where if you wear a shirt yeah if you wear a shirt they actually make fun of you more or they're like let's say you're a pretty ripped kind of guy Uh, you have a six pack you have a nice body but you need to be shirtless in order to see it and you wear a shirt yeah that's why i don't going- i don't do six packs you know the reason i don't really think being ripped is a smart idea is because first of all it kind of forces you into a very you know a bad lifestyle like not not a, a not a fa- bad lifestyle but a less fun lifestyle like, where you have to constantly monitor what you're eating and you know carry a tupperware around Mm-hmm. and no one can see it so if you're wearing a shirt people will assume you're skinny <laughs> so it's not worth it so my goal is just to be big and strong so that people know i lift even when i'm wearing clothes or at least here in india it's not considered to be polite to not wear a shirt i've never seen anyone in public <laughs> not wear a shirt even on beaches and everything like if you yeah, say- see a guy not wearing a shirt it means he's homeless and doesn't have a shirt <laughs> that's when you give him like 200 rupees is buy yourself a shirt man like but go ahead right i digress well the thing is if you are let's say you do get ripped and getting ripped is not an easy task it requires a whole lifestyle overhaul and let's say you do go out and you know you're wearing a shirt you're wearing a nice dress shirt to be exact others may just look at you and be like yo man look how skinny you are you're small and exactly you're that- small <laughs> Yeah, and that word like oh you're small, it could get to you. Especially if you're someone who puts in work. You altered your diet plan and now simply because you're wearing a shirt, they can't tell. But that's not their fault. That's your fault. Like you picked being skinny and you picked being ripped and that is something you can only see if you're shirtless. So and, and this is what this is where worth it. Well, no, actually I would say it was to a point worth it because it's here's worth the thing it's doing it once but it's not well, worth staying in that shape well, here's the thing harsh 
a lot of guys will hate on you. They'll be like, oh, man, you're so sh- uh, small, blah, 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 blah. But you know what girls will say? Because when you have a six-pack or if you're ripped, there's this chisel to your jaw that you can't get with a bulked body as well. Uh, grow that, a beard. Yeah, but that chisel where like, is this jawline. And this jawline is highly primal where women, if they see that jawline, yeah, they, like they become... They love it. Where I don't want to plug my Instagram or anything, <laughs> but, uh, but my uh, my personal uh, Instagram uh, Armani Talks underscore. If you scroll all the way back, I believe there's a picture of me with a six pack, and this is that point where I would say I was in college at the time, where according to guys I was considered small or skinny, but women loved it. They would literally just look at that jawline and they could see they process bodies differently than men where they'll look at your forearms. They'll see the veins and they'll be like, yo, this guy is actually pretty attractive. So what I'm trying to say, Harsh, is that men and women process what's a good body differently. very differently. That is definitely true. And, you know, I've when I was bulking, I would have girls tell me to stop. Because I'm wearing too big. <laughs> and as a guy, what is too big? Like, that doesn't exist. How big were you? Over 200? Uh, so I finished the bulk at about 100 kilos, so about 225. And I was intending to go to 100 and 110 kilos, so about 245 or 250. But then I had gained a lot of fat in the bulk. So I wanted to remove the fat because I wasn't feeling very good about, you know, looking chubbier. It was messing with me, so I, I decided. So I'm gonna cut. I'm, I'm about I'm about 92 now. So in the past three months, I've lost about eight kg of fat, more or less fat, because I eat 200 grams of protein. So it's very difficult to lose muscle. Mm-hmm. But that's definitely the case where women process bodies differently. Like girls will uh, say, "When are you getting abs?" And I'm like, "I'm bulking. I'm not getting abs." <laughs> <laughs> So you're 202 pounds right now, and I believe we're around the same height. Do you have a little bit of a circular face, or do you have a jawline as well? I have a pretty decent jawline, but I have like a beard now, so I can't really see. Like I have like uh, two inches of beard, I would say. Oh, okay. And a beard is another cheat code as well. But some guys can't grow beards like that, so now they have to work on different features. Such and as that jawline. jawline really looks good. The girls really love it. It's just that you have to shave every day, and I'm not going to do that. Are you kidding? Well, unless you're a guy like me who could who can't really grow a beard, so <laughs> no shaving needed. <laughs> what happens when you try to grow a beard? Like it's just like a couple of weeks, it'll look bad, but eventually it it should fill out. Well, for me, I try, but there's certain times I get patches where it doesn't look full. It doesn't look like eventually nice. it'll get there. But the way that my face looks, dude, I I believe I look better without the beard. Where whenever I do grow it, my face actually alters drastically. And I know because I see my face a lot as I'm watching my old videos back. And I look like a polar opposite guy. And I think personally for me, I look better mm-hmm. clean shaven. And I believe for me, like I've hit that two hundred pound range a few times where I think it's okay, but I think for me, 
I like the ripped, I wouldn't say super ripped body, but more towards the ripped side than the bulking side. Not only for energy, but I think actually physically look better with that body style. I see. I see. I think what you say makes sense as well. Like, you know, girl, I think girls, most girls don't really like beards that much, all that much, because I've had girls who actually complained about, you know, bigger beards <laughs> because it gets in the way for them. For them, it rubs their face. Uh huh. So not all girls like it. Like some girls are into it, but most girls would prefer you to shave. It's just that shaving involves a lot of work. And a beard looks good. Plus, if you're bulking, then you don't have to worry about your face getting fatter if you have a beard because it covers up nicely. Mm-hmm. Because My... otherwise, you know, if someone you you like looking good, and then when you're bulking, you have to gain some fat as well, and you see all your veins starting to disappear, and that kind of mm-hmm. messes you up. So you know. It's fine to not. I I don't trim my beard or my body hair. It's fine. Like that's that's normal. We're guys. We're supposed to be hairy. You Indians definitely are hairy. <laughs> no, I'm not that. I'm hairy. just joking. I'm, 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 I'm just not joking. Super hairy. Like if I was like you know, I don't look dirty hairy. Like some some people when they have lots of hair, they kind of look mm-hmm. dirty or at least that's my perception lately because I've been you know looking at. People with like waxed bodies lately. Nowadays on Twitter, people will post. So I'm getting used to that. So people with dirty hair, I would say, not not dirty. I mean, it just doesn't look super clean. But my hair aren't that dark, so it looks good. No, the reason that I said that, Harsh, was because uh, back to the grad school Indian guys that would come to parties, where they were super hairy, and what. I would say two of them would do is they would button, they would unbutton their shirt to the half, so their chest hair is sticking out, and they're over here walking like that the man. And I remember one time they're trying to get in, and the bouncer is like, "Hey, uh, button up your shirt." <laughs> it was too funny. Uh, A bouncer is the guy who lets you in the club or not. Okay, wait. What's wrong with having chest hair? That's normal. Well, well, it's not. Uh, it's normal, but this guy was over here unbuttoning his shirt, so you could see almost half of his chest. And we're in a public setting, and I'm like, "Hey, if girls you, can you do, why can't we?" He should have. He should have actually said that. He's like, well, she's doing it. <laughs> you know, it, girls nowadays wear clothes that are so short, and they think that you know. Sometimes they'll say, "If guys can wear it, why can't I?" But I've never seen guys wear clothes that are that short, you know. <laughs> like some some girls will wear like pants where you can actually see their ass, and I've never seen a guy wear that. Well, I've been seeing guys wear skinny jeans, and I'm like, dude, skinny you jeans don't stop fair, right now. But I don't, I haven't seen anything which shows like basically a guy who's almost nude. Like uh, that's, I've never seen that. Do people wear skinny jeans in India? Yeah, because most people in India are skinny. They don't left, so that's the fashion. Oh, okay. That's one thing I cannot ever wear. My, so your pants were painted on you. My, It's impossible for me to even find skinny jeans because I squat so much. I squat like twice a week, and I squat maximal weight. So, So my thighs are really, really big. So I'm at a situation where I have to find pants that are loose for my waist. So I have to wear like a belt. But they're tight for my thighs. 
loose around the waist? Yeah, so I have to wear a size which would be loose around my waist, but the pant would be still be snug and tight around my thighs because if I find a pant which is which fits my waist, then it won't fit my thighs. I won't be able to get it up. Oh, and do you wear shorts, or is the same thing with shorts? Oh no, shorts are usually fine, but they're very snug around my thighs. So clothes in India are made for you know the average Indian who has very weak legs. So you put someone like me into the Indian person's clothing, and you can literally see a bulge around my thigh, <laughs> where it just I have to wear a bigger size. So it's very loose around my calves because it's like a bigger size, and loose around my waist where I have to wear a belt. But around my thighs, it just fits, just fits. And you have problems with shirts. I have to wear shirts which have more material around the shoulder and you know give your arms some breathing space in the sense that some brands will make shirts for like skinny people so i can't put my arms in the sleeve mm-hmm. like my, it's, it's too tight tight around my biceps and sometimes the shoulders aren't just enough in the shirt that it'll just look weird or i have to like buy bigger sizes sometimes but there are certain brands which do make fitting clothes. Do you have like a certain style, Harsh? Are you preppy, casual, anything like that? So nowadays when I work, so I've been working from home, correct, for the past couple of years. So when I'm working, I will wear something very comfortable. And if I'm like doing a podcast, then I will usually wear something that's very snug because it improves your voice. Like, so currently I'm wearing like a turtleneck because it's very cold. Mm-hmm. But usually I would wear like something that gives me more authority so that I can have a better voice. Your What you wear gets into your voice. Um, but otherwise I wear like a jeans and a shirt or a t-shirt or something. Got it. It's because I can, you know, I don't really have to wear formals because I don't work for anyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like for me personally, um, I wear pretty, well, here's my philosophy. If I could wear the clothes, I would say 10 years from now, I am interested in it. And it's ironic because I love Armani Exchange clothes. And <laughs> <laughs> Armani Exchange was founded on 1991, my birthday. Oh, it's and, that new. Yeah. And one of the shirts, it's hilarious because it writes Armani, but the eye is on the complete edge. So it looks like it writes Armand. 1991 mm. so when i go out people are like oh my you have your own shirt <laughs> that's damn right i do <laughs> <laughs> damn right but i'm a big fan of armani exchange so do you normally wear formals like trousers and or do you normally wear jeans when you go I normally wear i normally wear jeans and i wear clothes that i'm comfortable with and if i'm going out for example to a fancy restaurant or something then you know your boy has the high-end clothes as well i have mm. a few custom fit suits i do have trousers but that's not how i'm normally dressing normally i dress uh, for comfort i think people like us have this advantage you know since we work for ourselves we don't have to listen to someone else about what to wear because i remember when i used to work in a big accounting firm I would have to wear formal clothes and I would have to wear a tie and I hated that tie so much. 
I have never worn a tie since. Oh, it was mandatory. Yeah, I think it was mandatory. I don't remember. This was back in 2015. So when I was 18 years old and I had to wear that tie and first of all in India it's very hot. In summers it's very hot. It's about 30 degrees Celsius and wearing that stupid tie and coat made me want to kill someone. And <laughs> I really hate ties. It just kind of makes me feel like I'm suffocating. Oh, you have to wear a coat too? Yeah, for formal places we would have to wear a coat. And I did not like I I never liked I liked wearing coats sometimes when it's like in AC, but I wouldn't wear a coat if I'm not in a air-conditioned room because it's just so hot. And ties I would never wear anywhere. It just it It's trying it's trying to kill you basically it's trying to suffocate you to death yeah in the us what happens is well what used to happen was that you would have to wear formal clothes from monday to thursday and for most companies on yeah, friday friday was casual wear casual clothes yeah, we had that too but nowadays most companies harsh they actually allow you to wear formal or informal all the time is that because more companies are moving to work from home or is it because they aren't facing the client anymore so in my last company which was a fortune 500 company they were doing this because other companies adopted it and apparently it boosted a worker happiness by a lot which led to more productivity mm. more people were now coming in on time more people were staying later and as more of the numbers came in the more that people more companies started to adopt it i see and, and harsh it's a night and day difference where for us like mentally when it was friday a part of me felt good because i was like yes today i could wear the jeans and i could wear uh, a t-shirt if i want but so we associated that positive feeling from a friday later on where it was now on the weekdays So now it'll be a Tuesday and I'm like, yes, I get to wear my jeans and my t-shirt today, forgetting that it's Tuesday. So more and more employees were thinking like this and more and more employees were now moving with a little bit more fire. So Arman, do you see um do you like working from home more or do you like did you like going to office more? Because I see that you're a very social person. You would I would say that you would like interacting with people more. but i can also see that when you're working from home you get more time to do things like this podcast and creating content and you know starting yes. a side business mhm the way that i structure my business harsh i still have a pretty good offline presence where i i network with different people in the tampa bay area uh and to answer your question i i personally liked my job a lot as well where i worked with different people But nowadays I enjoy the freedom that working from home can give because now you decide whether you want to do uh, more offline for the particular day or more online for the particular day where when you have to go to the company it's more so what they say but one thing that I do want to make the case for is for me personally working at an office is not that bad in my opinion 
because it does give you a chance to be exposed to more people. Where when I was in undergrad, Harsh, you could pretty much just go from your dorm to the library and you're at least going to run into three people. It may not seem like a lot, but from those three people, one person may say, hey, I'm throwing an event later tonight. Do you want to come through? And boom, you have just been presented an opportunity. While if you're strictly working from home and you don't take any measures to build some sort of offline presence, you're not necessarily getting that. Yeah, and you could get isolated very quickly. And I don't know if it's good for some people who already like staying to themselves a lot. What about you? You know, personally, I I really liked working from office because it would give me... I'm very extroverted in the sense that I'm extremely extroverted. I, I think when I do the big five tests, I, I get like 95% extroversion. So I really enjoyed interacting with lots of lots of people. But I also did not like the commute. And I think all in all, I would... I prefer working from home very significantly. And that's because you can always get social interaction in different ways, like sports or the gym or, you know, going out with your friends or whatever. And it, it, it does, it does, it's not the situation where work is the only place where social interaction is possible, but it becomes really, really difficult for someone to have a side business when they are working full time. It is possible and a lot of people do it where they work and when they have free time at work, they do a business. And a lot of people I know have done that. So when I released Life Math Money's course, The Art of Twitter, for Twitter, a lot of people who built brands on Twitter did that while they were working. So when they had like a minute, they would go and tweet something or whatever. But it's impossible to run a very serious big business if you have to go to office and waste time on a commute and essentially when you're being monitored by people. But it's much easier to do that when you're working from home. Plus, if you have a terrible boss who's micromanaging you, it's better to work from home. (laughs) So I think work from home is the way to go. And I think it's the future because it's just cheaper for the company and cheaper for the employee. And that's what all the talented people want, you know. All the talented people want to work from home and all the retards and the dumb people want to go back to office. So it is going to be work from home. There are some companies at this point, Harsh, which are slowly implementing going back to the office. And I do hear nowadays that it's a record high in how many people are quitting their jobs. I think these companies are behind the times in the sense they're living in 2019 and they are going to fail. Or if they don't change, they will eventually fail because they will be outcompeted. If you run a business which has 60% in cost and I run a business which has only 10% in cost, then I can provide the same service at a cheaper price and I will have better talent better talent because I can hire from across over the, all over the world. So I'm going to outcompete you and I'm going to win. It's just a matter of time. And the whole going back to office thing are just people who are behind the times and they will either learn or they will... They adapt or die, you know, adapt or die is the situation. So you see work from home not going away. It's going to be now integrated into culture. It has to be. 
What's that to do for HR positions? You think that becomes a dying field? I think HR will still be relevant. It just wouldn't need a very big department. HR is the reason HR exists is not just to, you know, hire people. It's the HR exists to protect the company from its employees. It exists to make mm-hmm. sure people don't sue the company and things like that. So HR departments will still be around. It it just would not have as much power as they do today. Dude, there was this one job that I had where I'm gonna call the guy Mike. He was this, I would say mid forties white guy, and he seemed like he used to be in the army because he was so freaking strict. And when I first joined the company, he went out of his way to invite me to lunch. We were interacting, we were talking, and. As more months started to pass on by, different coworkers would come to me and would be like, you know, Mike is under investigation by the HR, right? I was like, wait, for real? Why? They're like, you didn't know? Mike's a racist. I was like, Mike? No way. And there were all these different coworkers who were filing disputes against him. And apparently he called them certain words, talked to them a certain way. But I wasn't able to interpret that at all from our interaction together. And that's when I saw a need for, like, because before this, Harsh, I never really knew what the HR position did. I'm like, do people really file uh, reports to you guys? Or do you guys just, uh, are you guys just here just in case? And I saw that, I don't know how this solution would Mike would have been resolved without an HR team. Mm. I mean, I guess if different people could talk to him man to man, but he was a person of power. So there needed to be that yeah, sort of there, intermediary. There to someone to go to, correct. Yeah, I think that HR departments are necessary, especially for big companies, because otherwise you put the company at risk. Like People think HR is there for the employees, but really it's there for the company like to protect the company. Because mm-hmm. w- what happens, okay, let's say that there's some case of, let's say, sexual harassment, okay, and there's no HR department, okay, then if you can't go to the HR department, where do you go? You go to the police. And that is the worst case situation. So you would rather resolve the situation in-house than have it go outside the company, and that's what the HR is there for. So it's there to protect the company. It's not there for you. I am not fully sure what someone can say that people start filing, you know, reports against him for being racist. Like, was he like firing people for being different nationalities or something? I, I, don't, I don't know, but. So here's what happened. There were two people who told me something similar happened. One guy's name was Jorge and Jorge was. His name was Jorge. For, yeah. Like, but it's spelled like J O R G E. J oh, is pronounced okay, okay. ha. Jorge. Yes, Jorge. Jorge. Yeah. So he was about to be promoted for a pretty high position. And normally when you're about to get promoted for a high position, you have to get a few higher managers who vouch for you. And Mike was supposed to be the guy that vouched for Jorge. But instead, Mike was apparently telling a bunch of the other staff members that he's lazy because he's Spanish and that was his main concern, is his that ethnicity. Are Spanish people lazy? 
No, Spanish people are actually pretty hardworking. Is it? But okay. but but here's the thing: there are certain stigmas which are like, "Nah, man, the Spanish people are lazy. They take our jobs." These are certain stigmas. Wait, and was I think, that guy from Mexico or was he from Spain? Because I've heard that people from Spain are lazy. I don't know for sure, but I've heard they nap in the afternoon and everything. So I've heard that. I don't know about uh, Mexicans. Is he Mexican or Spanish? So Jorge wasn't either. He was Dominican. So I I think Mike was just superimposing that Spanish label. You know, mm. like I could be saying, oh, I'm Bengali. People would be like, oh, you're Indian. And they don't understand that there's differences. No, Bengalis are Indians. Yeah, but like, you know, like let's say Chinese, Vietnamese, Philippines, uh, Philippines some uh, people will be like China. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Eventually, we'll, they'll get there. You know, they're going to conquer everything and we're going to conquer Bangladesh. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Give it time. <laughs> <laughs> no, but basically what happened was he was just saying, listen, you're uh, he's Spanish, so you don't want to hire him. And he did that with one person. And then apparently with another person, he did something similar, but this one was a woman. So he wasn't necessarily being a racist, but he was being sexist in this regards, where he's like, oh, no, no, this is a man's position. A woman can't handle that. Where whether you agree with it or not, you don't yeah, tell that you don't to that. uh, you don't a, that. That's dumb. You don't say that to like a staff of people. And over time, he started to build his reputation, and more people just waited on his demise for them all to file the HR reports at the same time. And what happened with Mike was that he was in a high position, but he just sort of disappeared where he didn't get fired from the company, but he got a position which was not visible. And you could tell that this hurt his pride a lot because he was a guy that worked for years and years building up his reputation to be at the top. And then he just suddenly fell out of the blue moon. Hmm. So it was like politics in a way. Dude, corporate life is politics. Whether you want to play it or not, at some points as you're rising, there's certain levels of gossip and hands you have to shake, certain lunches you have to coordinate that come into the play in terms of determining whether or not you're going to get that promotion. And when I was first starting Armani Talks, there were different engineers I was working with on how they could present their ideas with more clarity and confidence. And the problem with a lot of these engineers was that they knew the system very well. That was their strength and that was their liability as well because they spoke like machines. And I'm like, listen, even if you know these systems or not, that doesn't matter. The operations team, the business analysts, they don't know any of the technicalities that you know. So you got to speak to people. Don't speak uh, to Arman, machines. Don't speak cut. to show how smart you are. Uh, you don't know any of the tech? The what? Your voice got cut. W- what's the last thing you heard? Uh, you don't know any of the tech. I don't know any of the tech. No, I, I do know the tech. Uh, but what I'm saying is... like you, I, The last thing was I, I heard was you don't know how, they don't know how to speak. And they talk like machines. Yes. So what I'm trying to say is if you're a hard-skilled engineer who knows your system, whatever you're the application manager for, eventually what's holding you back from getting that promotion 
is being able to display your competency to other people who don't speak your language. That's why it kind of ties into that politics thing that I was talking about, where the way that I'm using politics now is that you got to be able to communicate your message in a way where people understand. Every now and then, there's going to be some hostility. Every now and then, people are going to comply quickly. But you got to understand somewhat of how to how people work. You can't just understand the machines and call it a day. Hmm, I agree. In fact, I used to have the same issue where I would, I was very good at everything I do, but I would just walk over people in the sense that I would show them the disrespect and that would eventually come to bite me in some or the other way. And of course, this matters very little to me now because I have my own business. But I even now, I still try to not be super crash, crass with people. But back then, when I was 18, I was, I was very rough with people. Were you intentionally or accidentally being rough? Both. Because what I've noticed, Harsh, is that with a lot of technical positions, whether it's accounting or engineers, what happens is they're not necessarily, well, in your case, you were probably both, but with other people, they're a lot of the times confused. They're like, why did this person get offended? I just told them what it is. I'm like, bro, but it's the way that you said it. Your voice is very harsh. He's like, what? Why does that matter? I told them what he needed to hear. And it was accidental on their end. It wasn't intentional. I think, you know, when there's a step up when you realize that what you the way you say things really matters that so when when people think that what they say matters and the way they say it should be irrelevant that's when you know that this person isn't very socially developed and that's because while it's true this is how the world should have been it's not but the world isn't this way so they're living in a fantasy land in reality, people really care about how you say things and how you make them feel. So you have to care about it because if you don't, then you won't have any relationships or network or anything you want to build. So that is something that once you realize it, you know you have got you've gained a step, like you have leveled up. You have learned something very important about the world. In a way, it's like your first day in the gym. You have you're essentially just about to discover a lot more. And one way to ease yourself into that, if a guy is like, I'm that guy, I speak too harsh, my voice tone isn't nice, and when I'm trying to disagree with someone, I make an enemy, here's what you can do to ease yourself into it. Smile before disagreeing and make the mental note that this other person is more sensitive than you can initially imagine. By simply doing this, what you do is you create a thing called verbal judo, where your words are more dynamic. There's this more dance to the words. And if you could say the words correctly, you could flat out insult the person. Like I could be like, harsh, you piece of shit. And I could be smiling. And subconsciously, your mind is going to bypass that thinking that I'm joking with you. Mm. But imagine if a leader is capable of communicating this message in a way where they're able to give feedback properly, which is important. 
you know, Arman, the way I would say deal with it is to just imagine that you're talking to children, that you're talking to children. So how would you criticize a child? Like you would do it very politely and, you know, you would, you wouldn't be too harsh. And I know it sounds very condescending, but it's usually best to think of everyone else as a child. Like how would you deal with a kid, like a five-year-old and speak that way? Mm-hmm. That's that where really women works. are. Yeah. That's where women are gifted, harsh, where it comes so naturally to them, where they have this gentle tonality that they can deliver these messages with, and they notice micro movements so rapidly. Did you notice that? Yes, it's almost like women evolved to deal with children, almost like. <laughs> <laughs> There's this very good book, um, How to Win Friends and Influence People, that I think everyone should read. It's available on socialskillswisdom.com for free. Yeah, by Dale Carnegie? Yeah, by Dale Carnegie. And you don't want to read the the modern book. You want to read the one on socialskillswisdom.com because that guy's book, so... He wasn't a big feminist or anything. And he wrote advice on how to deal with men and women separately. But after he died, his wife and his daughter essentially deleted the book. They basically made it gender neutral. And they deleted all the paragraphs on how to deal with your wife and how to stop your wife from nagging and whatever. Okay. So they removed all of that and they made it they made it basically uh, a very pacified version of the actual book. So you would you want to read the uncensored, unrevised edition from 1950, which is on teachers, uh, sorry, which is on socialskillswisdom.com and not buy a copy from the store because you will get the revised edition, which has essentially been cucked by this guy's wife and children, like his daughter. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So what they did was they edited the entire book to be gender neutral. And that doesn't work, okay? Like it, the book says, like you have to add bad words, like I think I, and you know, words like that, like maybe, and that works with men in business situations. But you start doing that with women, w- women, and you will look like a pussy. Like you tell a woman, I think it's a good day. Like, is it a good day or is it not? So with <laughs> women, you want to deal with them differently. You want to be far more assertive and you know dominant with the w- women. But with men, you want to you know, be softer and be more business-like. So it takes away that dynamic when they did the revised edition. So I don't think the revised edition is a good thing. You should check out the unrevised edition, which is on socialskillswisdom.com. Did you learn anything different in the unfiltered one? Was it mainly dynamic communication? I think... The unfiltered one is way better, way, way better. And it has literal chapters that were not... So the book was divided into four parts. And the fourth part was dealing... It was basically about married life. And what the revised edition did was that it completely deleted the fourth part, like all of it. So people, when they're buying a book from the store, they're only reading a small portion of the book. They also deleted the chapter on how to write better. 
and how to write more effectively. And I don't know why they deleted that, but it's the edit, the edits this guy's wife and daughter made were not so good. And you should read the original book. So let me see, let, let me go to the site and see what topics they missed. Yeah, so they missed out all the topics on how you can make your marriage better and what things mean a lot to women and women and what things mean more to men. So, for example, women really care about you remembering their birthday and the marriage anniversary date and men don't give a shit about that. Like, we don't care. So all of that is just deleted in the modern revised edition. So the book is in six parts and they delete for two of those parts. So you're only reading four out of six parts if you buy the book from the store. But if you read on socialskillswisdom.com, which has the unrevised edition, you can read the entire book. And plus it's free because in India, the copyright lasts for a certain number of years and that has expired. So this is a completely legal website that I made. Nice. I'll include the link in the description box. But yeah, in general, you'd never want to talk to men and women women the same way because with men, you want to say things like, I think this is happening. I th-. So for example, if you're, if a guy says um, from something like the concert is at 8 p.m. and you know it's at 9 p.m., you would want to say, I think it's at 9 p.m. Um, but with girls, you don't want to do that. If you do, I think with girls and, you know, you add a lot of business language, she will think you're a pussy because <laughs> you're not sure of yourself. So with girls, you want to say it's at nine. And that's it. Like you, you want to be the leader there. But with guys, if you try doing that a lot, then you make it a competition thing. And then you there's more hostility. The ability to adjust is key. Man, we're able to talk for a long period of time. It's been over two and a f- hours and 45 minutes. How are you feeling right now? Well, I'm feeling quite good. It's So when we started to talk, it was about 6 a.m. It was 6 a.m. and now it's 9.15. We're over 2.45. We're three, three hours, 15 minutes in. Wow. You don't go for a little bit longer? Yeah, uh, we could go or we could just end it here. We could do next next week again. Okay, so you want to start ending it? Cool, okay. So this was a very productive conversation with you, Arman. And as always, I really enjoy talking with you. But I'll get some breakfast soon. It's 9.30, almost 9.30 here. Oh, it is exactly 9.30 here. So I'll get something to eat. And I'll go get some dinner soon. It was a great uh, 10-episode anniversary, man, and I'm happy to be doing this with you. We always have insightful talks. Likewise, Arman, it's always great to talk with you and have a good day. Thank you very much. And for those of you guys listening, be sure to hit the like, hit the subscribe button, and stay updated with the latest episodes of Unapologetic Truths. Thank you very much for joining, and we will catch you on the next episode.